Ron Simmons charges down the ring and a char- charges down the ring. Jeez. <laughs> it's I find the typos by saying the typos. That's all I can do. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days and not-so-good old days of World Championship Wrestling, series by series. I'm your host, Bob Moore, and I'm joined by a guy who definitely knows where to find the power button on a computer, Alec Pridgen. It's on the back, right? It it depends on the model, Al. Oh, then I mostly know where to find the power button. (laughs) Forgot to qualify it. How's it going tonight? Pretty good, pretty good. How about you? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. We are uh, starting the last of the Russell Wars already. Yeah. Quite a change from the Starcades, huh? Yeah, having four shows versus, what, 18? Is I think it was 18, change. yeah. <laughs> Get the hard one out of the way first. Yeah, less than a fourth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. It feels weird to be saying that we're covering the last show, but uh, that's where we are. Yeah, yeah. So tonight, we're covering Wrestle War 92, War Games, Destroy or Be Destroyed. Wrestle War 92 was held on May 17, 1992, at the Jacksonville Memorial Coliseum in Jacksonville, Florida, in front of 6,000 fans, and earned 120,000 pay-per-view buys. That's less than last year's Starcade, which got 140,000 pay-per-view buys, but more than this year's Starcade, which will only earn 100,000, presumably because 40,000 customers saw Battle Bowl on the poster again and suddenly thought of better ways to spend their evening. Good call, good call, yeah. <laughs> Sadly, though, they did end up missing one of the best Starcades. Yeah. Nine- 92 was pretty good. <laughs> but it definitely turned around from 91, yeah. Yeah. There was one dark match before the show. Diamond Dallas Page and Thomas Rich beat Bob Cook and Firebreaker Chip. DDP aside, I'm not as sad about missing that match as I was about missing the Lucha match last year. That's true. It is weird that we Firebreaker Chip is split up from his partner who's randomly a singles match in the show. Yes, yeah. On one side, Sting Squadron. Has Sting managed to recruit the athletic talent needed to win this grueling war? On the other side, Paulie's dangerous alliance is Paulie doomed to destruction. We'll find out as WCW presents Wrestle War 92. We start with a quick video going over the War Games match for tonight. That's Sting's Squadron, which is Sting, Barry Windham, Dustin Rhodes, Ricky Steamboat, and Nikita Koloff, versus Pauly Dangerously's Dangerous Alliance. That's a great name. It is. Arn Anderson, Larry Zabisco, Rick Rude, Steve Austin, and Bobby Eaton. The package is not very optimistic about Dangerously's chances. Either seems to be fair, I mean. Yeah. It just, it's questioning whether Sting is a team or not, and then questioning whether or not Pauly Dangerously is doomed to destruction. It's- Definitely very pessimistic. But I mean, there's a slight difference there between like, did you recruit the right team or are you going to continue to exist? True, true, yeah. (laughs) 
There's a very nihilistic tone to the whole yeah. thing. Yeah. Seems kind of the opposite of how you'd want to write things. You want to build tension around whether the good guys can win, not whether the bad guys will live. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. It does have a really cool backlit logo for the war games, though. And we got some rather nice early 3D computer graphics for the WrestleWar 92 logo. Mm-hmm. That's true. As a massive amount of pyro goes off, Tony Schiavone welcomes us to the show and claims that it's a capacity crowd. It is probably not, as the Memorial Coliseum could host about 10,000, and I seriously doubt that losing only one side of the arena for the entrance ramp costs 40% of its capacity. No, 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 to be fair, 60% capacity is capacity. It's a capacity. (laughs) You have me there. There you go. Just as with last year, we have two rings set up, so I will call the one next to the entrance ramp ring one, and the other one ring two. Tony is sitting alongside his future boss, Eric Bischoff. They build up war games, and Eric says Sting has been waiting a long time to face the dangerous alliance in war games and to close the book on Paul E. Dangerously. Tony brings up that Sting had his ribs broken in April, and Eric says that he's going to be a marked man, and the dangerous alliance will go after his rib injury. Tony throws to our commentary team tonight, Jim Ross and Jesse the Body Ventura. Though, according to the names that flash on screen, Jesse's last name is simply The Body, as they leave out Ventura. Yeah, that is an odd thing. <laughs> yeah. A bit. <laughs> they still call Jim Ross, Jim Ross. <laughs> so it's not just that they're doing the first names. <laughs> just yeah. Jesse is Jesse The Body. I guess it's better than calling him Jim Good Old JR. Yeah, true. Jesse is wearing an interesting snakeskin vest, and is of course wearing massive sunglasses indoors. Jesse says that he went to war in 1969, so he knows what war is all about. Is it less offensive to compare war games to an actual war if an actual military guy says it? It's kind of a loophole, I guess, but yeah. (laughs) Slightly better anyway, I guess. I I think if they had done it where Jim Ross asked Ventura if it was like going to war, that would be worse. Yeah, but Jesse brings it up himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. He also compliments JR's polka dot bow tie, which is in fact not a bow tie, but a pocket square. Take off the sunglasses, Jesse. Yes. <laughs> JR asks Jesse his opinion on the first match for the U.S. tag titles, and Jesse says that he's going to go with the champs as the challengers. The Freebirds are focusing too much on rock and roll and not enough on wrestling. JR says the best fans in the world are in the arena tonight, which seems like kind of a slight on the fans who ordered the pay-per-view. Yeah. <laughs> Well, they're there in spirit, I guess. <laughs> sure. I mean, it's like there's room to put them in there. <laughs> it's time for the match, so let's go to the ring. Our first match is the tailor-made man, Terry Taylor, and Greg the Hammer Valentine. Long time since we've seen him. Yeah, since the first episode of that. Yeah. Versus the fabulous Freebirds, that's Jimmy Jam Garvin and Michael P.S. Hayes, for Taylor and Valentine's WCW United States Tag Team Championship. The referee for this one is Bill Alfonso, and this will be taking place in Ring 1. The Freebirds have red coats with a silver V-shape on the back, and a bit too much of a delay before their pyro comes on, so they kind of had to stand there a bit awkwardly dancing to wait for it. What does the V stand for exactly? Victory. Hmm. Gotcha. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Taylor and Valentine have music that sounds like a kind of crappy version of Eye of the Tiger. (laughs) 
Taylor's red smoking jacket looks awful. Like, it's entirely (laughs) the wrong size. (laughs) Yeah, it does. Valentine has a much better Ric Flair-style robe than professional budget version Ric Flair Buddy Landell. Yes, true. (laughs) And I got a sense of V in the back, because that would make sense. (laughs) See, that would, yeah. yeah. Maybe they stole those from Valentine. (laughs) That's the future star. They stole his jackets. The red and blue color scheme for the Taylor and Valentine team is kind of cool, though, and Valentine is wearing white boots, so they've got the full U.S. Tag Champs color scheme going on. Yeah, that's true. Hayes talks at the camera, but Jesse and JR just talk over that. <laughs> it is enormously funny to me to see the Freebirds leading the crowd in a chant for once instead of being chanted at, and Hayes gets really into stomping for the crowd to clap along. At some point, he's going to, you think he's going like, to break one of the boards into the ring. <laughs> yes. He's like, sort of stop and look down and go, oops. Uh, <laughs> work around that corner. Taylor mocks Hayes strutting to huge boos, so Hayes struts himself and gets big cheers. Hayes out-wrestles Taylor and easily escapes his holds, so Taylor tags out during a whip, but Hayes dodges around so Taylor runs into Valentine and rolls up Valentine for two. Valentine lands a blow or two, but Hayes counters a kick into Atomic Drop and hits a couple clotheslines for another two count. Hayes keeps stomping for claps, clearly enjoying the reaction he's getting from the crowd. <laughs> Tag to Garvin, and he dodges a Valentine charge, so Valentine eats ring post. They do a nice and complex counter sequence with attempts at a back body drop, roll up, and elbow drop, ending with a Garvin wrist lock. Garvin fakes a kick at Taylor to draw him in to distract Alfonso, so Hayes comes in without a tag to work Valentine's arm. Tag to Taylor, but the Freebirds just trade off working his arm instead, until Taylor manages some headbutts to stun Hayes, who pulls him down by the hair. Alfonso is suspicious, but Hayes denies nefariousness, and the crowd defends him. <laughs> is this Bizarro World? <laughs> I mean, if you can't trust Michael Hayes, who can you trust? <laughs> it's just, it's hilarious to see this. The Freebirds, for the past three shows, have been these, like, hated, hated villains. Oh yeah, no, totally. And now they're now the crowd's loving them. Hayes gets a two-count off a back elbow into an elbow drop, but Taylor falls back during a Garvin armbar to throw him through the ropes, and Valentine hits a double axe handle from the apron to the floor. The two try to wear Garvin down, but he counters many of Valentine's moves, and Valentine topples like a falling tree. (laughs) (laughs) Taylor finally earns a two-count with a clothesline and puts on a chin lock, but Garvin escapes and clotheslines him down, then tags Hayes, who runs wild with punches, back body drops, and a double noggin knocker. Hayes tries the DDT on Valentine, but Taylor nails him with the five arm, which Jesse thinks is called the five iron. <laughs> he's he's got, a, got a round or two later he's got to play. Yeah. Valentine gets two and a half off of that. Valentine gets multiple two counts off a backbreaker and again off a headbutt. Valentine oddly sells the chest after being kneed in the crotch. <laughs> Taylor uses a really surprising and very cool gut wrench powerbomb for two before Valentine gets a figure four leg lock, but Garvin breaks that up. Hayes collapses after a whip before Valentine can charge, so Valentine pauses awkwardly, then stomps him instead. Miscommunication there. A little bit. Hayes repeatedly counters Taylor's turnbuckle rams, then nails a left hook and tags Garvin, who destroys Taylor and Valentine, rolls up Taylor, and uses the momentum of the kickout to clothesline Valentine. Garvin evades a double-double axe handle, a quadruple axe handle, I guess? Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) And gets his own double clothesline, but Valentine trips him, and Taylor hits a knee drop for one as Hayes saves. 
Garvin tries the DDT on Taylor, but Valentine charges and Garvin casually back body drops him, keeping his hold, and hits the DDT on Taylor anyway for the three count and the win as Hayes holds Valentine back. The crowd goes wild as the Freebirds celebrate with the belts. Thoughts on this one? Uh, that was pretty good. I think it's just a Valentine thing. It's definitely a bit of an old school feel for like, at least the middle portion of this match. Basically, I guess whenever, he, whenever he's involved, he never really seems to evolve his style like a lot of wrestlers do. Which, you know, can get or bad. If you like the style in 1983, it still works in 1992, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because, what was it, what, two shows ago we had Pillman and Zink against the Freebird? This felt like a very similar form of that match. The idea that they're the seamless team, the Freebirds, that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're not doing the, like, dissension in the team thing, like what they did with Doom. Taylor and Valentine get along, but they definitely don't work super well together. Yeah. Which might explain why I'm thinking of one of the great tag teams of all time. You definitely see um, a lot of points that they intentionally put into the story, where the Freebirds are able to use them against each other. Exactly, yeah. The kick out into the clothesline and the bit where Hayes makes them run into each other. Mm-hmm. So they're not on all cylinders where the Freebirds just are constantly smooth together. Yeah, the Freebirds in, the, in this match and most of the matches, they personally push the idea that they're a tag team and that's all they are. Mm-hmm. Versus teams that are two singles wrestlers that are very strong, but you can separate them and you know, it's like section we control. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting seeing these similar matches in similar teams. But obviously, the Freebirds are now good guys, apparently. Yeah. Who also cheat. Yes. In contrast, just them against Pillman and Zink. For the exact same titles, by the way. Yes. That's <laughs> extra fun. The mindset of the crowd is completely different. But yeah, it's not super memorable, but it's not bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I'm in the same mindset. This was a, a perfectly okay opener. It was a pretty basic tag match, but interspersed with some endearing <laughs> cheating by the Freebirds, dastardly cheating by the champs, and a few very nice counter-sequences that kept bringing me back into the match whenever the bog-standard arm work started to make me lose interest. I was pretty sad that Taylor didn't do much character work outside of the intro, since I thought he did pretty well with that last year. That's true, yeah. Garvin's face in peril bit feels a little weird, as he doesn't really take any particularly hard blows, but he still acts like he desperately needs to tag, Mm -hmm. where Hayes' face in peril segment works a lot better. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of like with more modern matches when they'll take what should be, a, say, a 10-minute tag match. They only give him, like, five minutes for the match. Yeah. Within two minutes, it's the, oh, no, he's down forever. He's got to fight his way from the top. Yeah. Now, he should recover that just fine by now. I did like that both teams were shown countering each other's big moves pretty fast. Mm-hmm. And while it looked like it could have gone better, the five-arm counter for the DDT mid-match was very cool. Oh, yeah. The ending spot I really liked. It was chaotic, but very well choreographed. So this could probably have lost two to four minutes of arm work that didn't go anywhere, but the fun character work by the Freebirds and some good counter sequences still made it very enjoyable. I can see that, yeah. So the Freebirds would lose the title at a live event to the also kind of weird team of Dick Slater and the Barbarian. This happened in June. And then on July 4th, the head of the company would announce that they were going to sort of unify all the titles. So at this point, they technically have WCW US Tag Team titles, WCW World Tag Team titles, and not really talked about much, NWA World Tag Titles are still in effect. Okay. So they technically have three tag titles sort of running concurrently. So he announced that they were going to basically unify all of them under the World Tag Team titles, which happened at the end of July. 
So the U.S. and the NWA tag titles don't exist. Okay. Though I think for a brief period, the NWA and WCW are unified. Nineteen Star Arcade's won with Steamboat and Shane Douglas, right? They're the unified tag champions. I think so, yes. So in other words, they just get rid of the U.S. tag titles altogether, but keep the other belts around. <laughs> R.I.P. Big Red Belts. I still remember when you made a bit of the show once. <laughs> yes, that was so weird. JR throws back to Tony and Eric, and Tony says the difference between winning and losing sometimes comes down to just one move. Eric and Tony praise Hayes' guts, fighting back to make the tag. Tony and Eric discuss the upcoming match, Johnny B. Bad versus Tracy Smothers, and say that a win for Bad here could get him in contention for a title shot in the future. So our second match is Young Pistol Tracy Smothers versus Johnny B. Bad. The referee for this match is Mike Atkins. And we're in ring two now. But the end of last year, they decided to turn Johnny B. Bad face. He had been a heel when he first comes in. And so he had a pretty good winning streak initially, but then he loses and sort of drops on the card a bit. He's a good guy now and trying to fight his way back up to his position he once had as a bad guy. Smothers still has the shiny cowboy duster, even San's tag partner. Yes. Johnny B. Bad has a kind of amazing shiny gold robe with arm extensions to make it look like wings when he holds his arms out. It fires out sparklers because, of course, it does. Yeah. I'm kind of surprised that Sting hasn't had a pyro shooting jacket. Yeah, it's true. It seems like something he would do at some point. <laughs> I guess you could argue he's just so popular he doesn't even need that. Yeah, true. Might be overkill, maybe, but yeah, I could definitely see why he had that. Can you picture the Captain Sting America jacket, except it also fires off red, white, and blue sparklers? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. By the way, his confetti gun is called the Bad Blaster. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah, Bad says he's the greatest wrestler of all times, and he's so outrageous it's contagious. Jesse is insulted by JR comparing him to Bad as they both wore feather boas. Bad continues chattering to the camera, puts a kiss sticker on a woman's face, accepts dollar bills in his knee pad from people in the crowd for some reason. Yeah. That was strange. A little bit. Then climbs into the ring and fires off his Bad Blaster, a confetti gun. Jesse questions Bad's finishing maneuver, a left hook, because it is in fact a closed fist punch. He has a point. Yeah, yeah. Between Johnny B. Bad and ref Mike Atkins, we've got some amazing mustaches in this match. That's true. Mother's the only one left out, huh? Yeah, yeah. Atkins, with his uh, Old West Saloon ref, look looks very appropriate for a match involving someone from the Young Pistols. That's true, yeah. <laughs> he could have he been their manager if they'd really worked things out. Oh, that would have been great. Yeah, yeah. Bad gets an early roll-up for two, and Smothers alleges that he pulled the tights. He did not. No. Smothers flees after some rapid arm drags by Bad, and we get a weird juxtaposition as the crowd cheers loudly for Bad, but a lot of them have decided that now is the right time to go get some snacks. Yes. Bad arm drags out of a headlock and gets two off a crossbody, then hits a rapid dropkick into an arm drag and arm bar as Jesse compliments his speed on the dropkick and says that Bad reminds him of himself doing dropkicks. JR doesn't remember that, and Jesse says that JR has a short memory. <laughs> Smothers stops the momentum with a bad knee strike and a great jumping sidekick for two, and we get loads of two counts off a Smothers flying elbow, bad roll up off a Smothers crossbody, and great Smothers flying kick. Smothers sits down on a bad sunset flip for two, but shows off, so bad counters for two. 
Roll Up on a Charging Elbow earns Bad 2, and Bad nails an impressive leaping knee strike, and dodges some punches to return his own in a cool boxing bit. Power Slam and a Top Rope Sunset Flip get Bad another 2, and Smothers comes back with a backfist and a charging kick, but Bad ducks and hits the Kiss That Don't Miss, left hook, for the 3 count and the win. Jesse is aghast that the ref counted the fall, and says that's no better than hitting Smothers with a chair. <laughs> Thoughts on this one? I thought this one was pretty decent. It's one of those matches where there's really not a lot of story, both leading into it and like throughout the match. Like There's not a body part they pick or anything. But what they do is they just basically keep active. Mm-hmm. There's no lulls, really, for the most part, other than brief transitional sort of arm holes and the like. So it's like one of the ones where you're not going to get super engaged with it, but if you're watching, you never really get bored because there's right. always something happening. Yep. Bad's at a kind of interesting place because I think his character works better as a face, mm-hmm. having seen a little of his heel work, but mostly his face stuff. Other than the fact that he is, according to Jesse, blatantly cheating with his punching, his character is meant to be endearing. Yeah. Trying to get crowd approval, trying to look pretty and all the stuff he likes to say. So I think he works well in this kind of story, whereas when he's a heel, it never seemed right. He has a lot of personality, and that tends, unless you're being really insulting with it, to get you cheered. Yeah. He has a lot of crowd interaction. Yes. And that that really works better with a face character, I think. But yeah, I thought they, they kept everything moving well. It definitely felt less of an old school match than the previous one. Mm-hmm. One of it was, um, enjoy top rope, move while you can, 1992. <laughs> yes, true. Bill Watts is coming and or is actually here. I think Bill Watts is here, but he's not formally running things yet. I think it's the next show with the first one. In the end credits, I think Kip Frey and Bill Watts both show up, so I'm guessing yes. this is kind of the transition show. Yeah. I thought the... It's weird, because the finish was kept like a building and building, and then suddenly it just stops and punches. It kind of works, though. Because the idea that he can hit this punch out of nowhere. The, yeah. I guess precursor the RKO kind of thing. They're, they're building him up the same way they did Michael Hayes with the really fast punch that can knock you flat. Yeah, yeah. The couple years before. That's true, true. Yeah. I thought this was honestly a pretty nice little match. It's quite short, but it's a good showcase for Bad's agility, and Smothers pulls off some kind of cool and unusual jumping sidekicks. I like that he has his own style for those. Mm-hmm, yeah. The two worked pretty well together and mostly kept the match moving well. I especially liked the late match points where Bad swiftly dodged Smothers' strikes and fired back with punches. Those looked really smooth and played nicely into the ending spot. I could probably have done with this one being a tad longer to have more outright story to it, like you were mentioning. Yeah. But for what we got, it showed off Bad's potential, and it's the first time I've seen a young pistol without his tag partner and actually liked him. So that was good. <laughs> they set the bar nice and low to step over these, yeah. Yeah. Jimmy Bad would have uh, something to do with the next show, which is Beach Blast. Mm-hmm. He would be hosting Bikini Contest. Yes. Which they will spend all night teasing Jesse Ventura's involvement in something or other. Throughout commentary, they won't say. Yeah. We only want you to watch the next show to have him announce it. Yeah, Jesse uh, continually talks about having an important job at Beach Blast, and the only thing he'll say is that it involves <sighs> chest measurements. That'll be really different. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Smothers would actually leave WCW pretty soon after this. Apparently, this match... Didn't rank very important to coin over made his wiki page. Because if you go to his Wikipedia page for Smothers, it says 
Brothers' last major appearance in WCW was January 21st, 1992 at Class of Champions 18. <laughs> He's on an actual pay-per-view, guys. I know, I know, I know. Whoever wrote that just didn't care about this match at all, I guess. Yeah. That's yeah, a shame. This one's, it's, it's all right. Yeah. They did a good job. It's only time to probably get to mention this, but it's kind of funny. So, 1995, the USWA made their own version of the Nation of Domination faction. Okay. Which was mostly made up of white wrestlers, which is interesting. Okay. And they were all given names that were basically the first name of some famous black athlete and the last name of a different black athlete. So, Tracy Mothers, when he was in the, the NOD in the USWA, was named Shaquille Ali. Is there a real thing that had happened? Wow. Yes. <sighs> Probably never gonna do a USWA show. No chance to mention that. So yeah, I get around to it now. Jr. throws to Missy Hyatt, who is with the Freebirds and Precious. I did not recognize Precious at first, as she's returned as a brunette. Oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> And you know what? It took a woman behind the Freebird Enterprises to do it. Missy, it's a real pleasure to be here. And my boys have worked really hard tonight, and it's paying off. They've been singing hard. They've been wrestling hard. And it's all right. They've made it tonight, and they're new champions, and I love it. Thank you, Squeezy. I tell you, we feel great. We said we were going to do it, and we did it. Just the Freebird way. If we say we're going to do something, we definitely do it. As you can see here now, we had our work cut out for us, but the DDT, as we always said, is only a heartbeat away. And right there it was. We've seen our opportunity, and boom! One, two, three, the U.S. Tag Team titles go to the Birds. Yes! First of all, Missy, I want to say we dedicated this match to Ronnie Van Zandt and the whole Leonard Skinner band. And wasn't it ironic that right here in Jacksonville, where Leonard Skinner was born, where Southern rock and roll emerged, is where the fabulous Freebirds are climbing that stairway back to heaven. And this is only the first step. There's an NWA Tag Team Tournament for the world titles. Guess who's knocking on the door? There's somebody else as the WCW World Tag Team Titles. Guess who's knocking on the door? I can't say why we do what we do, but we are the free version. That's our excuse. There's a lot of celebration right back here. Now, let's go to Tony and Eric. <laughs> uh, I, I thought this was a fun little promo segment. I love that Garvin actually got to call his own match replay. That was kind of funny. Yeah. yeah, he seemed to really enjoy it, too. Getting to really show off a little bit. It was also really funny hearing Hayes kind of jump in as soon as Garvin paused. Yes. So clearly he remembered the nonstop Garvin promo from Stargate 87. Absolutely. He's like, yep, <laughs> it's my only chance. I gotta get in now. <laughs> Quick, Willie takes a breath. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. At least some of Hayes' song references are definitely for the wrong band, though, right? Yes, yes. Dear what I have in his, as a joke commentary, is Led Zeppelin, not Leonard. Right, right, right. I remember him saying that now. <laughs> Not sure how you get those things mixed up. Still, uh, it was a short but fun little promo, I thought. Yeah. I have no idea what the last line means, though. <laughs> uh, yeah, not really clear. <laughs> all I know is he's knocking at the door. That's about all I got out of that. Yeah, that, that bit with him jumping right in <laughs> was great, though. <laughs> he's learned from experience. Yeah. We go back to Tony and Eric, and Tony says that it's a big night for the Freebirds. Eric says that in the 90s, behind every successful man, there's an equally successful woman. Wait, wait is that progressive or not? Uh, 
I'm not really sure on that one, yeah. Yeah. Tony turns the conversation to Scotty Flamingo from Florida, and Eric says that he'll be facing Marcus Alexander Bagwell, who has been a promising rookie, but the honeymoon is over and he has to prove himself now. They, I believe, will continue to refer to Marcus Alexander Bagwell as a rookie well into 1996. More than that, even, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So our third match is Marcus Alexander Bagwell versus Scotty Flamingo. The referee for this match is Randy Anderson, and we're back in ring one. Bagwell's drum-heavy entrance music is kind of cool. He's in sparkly gold pants, which are not. Maybe if you had a matching sparkly gold top hat, that would help. No. Okay. Let, let me treasure the time before he becomes buff. Okay. Mm, okay. <laughs> He's not the stuff yet. Yeah. Scotty Flamingo has a white coat and hat and a gigantic picture of himself on the back of his coat. So he's humble, right? I guess if you lose it, it'd be easy to say, hey, this is mine. Because look at the back. It's me right there. Yeah, yeah. Scotty Flamingo is, of course, Raven. Yes. This is, shall we say, a different gimmick from the more famous brooding emo poet persona he'll adopt later on. Yes. Right now, he's just a smarmy, punchable jerk, so basically the persona that Marcus Alexander Bagwell will take on later in the 90s. Yeah, pretty much. Both in and out of the ring, apparently. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Flamingo strips down to his multicolored wrestling shorts. His watermelon shorts, you mean? Yeah. JR calls the young wrestlers kids, and Jesse says that he guesses he'd think of them as kids too if he was as old as JR. But JR notes that when Ventura was in the military in 1969, JR was still in high school, which is true. Yes, yeah. Jesse accuses him of dodging the draft. <laughs> wow. Inconclusive wrestling to start, so Flamingo gets frustrated and slaps Bagwell, and they trade hard slaps and punches, and Bagwell gets thrown out of the ring, but charges back in to tackle Flamingo for more punching. Bagwell earns two off a belly-to-back suplex and vertical suplex, countering Flamingo's, but lands hard after being thrown out of the ring. He still gets another two-count off a roll-up counter to a knee strike, but Flamingo stops the momentum with kind of a shoddy belly-to-back suplex. Yeah. Not sure what happened there. A little off. Flamingo gets a one count off a second rope fist drop and goes to a reverse chin lock, using the hair to keep Bagwell in the hold and earning two counts with some choking before more chin lockery. I'm sorry, is that a word now, chin locker? That, that is a word now. I declare it so. Okay. Bagwell fights back, but a Flamingo crossbody takes both over the ropes to the floor. Back in, they trade strikes and throws. Flamingo whips Bagwell to the corner, and Bagwell awkwardly pauses before hitting a rebound back elbow. Bagwell hits a yellow jacket suplex, which is actually a fisherman suplex, but Flamingo gets the ropes. Bagwell thinks he's won, but Anderson corrects him. Flamingo reverses a Bagwell whip, but Bagwell rolls him up, but Flamingo manages to roll over and holds the tights for the three count and the win. Flamingo celebrates and gets out of there before Bagwell can take revenge. <laughs> Thoughts on this one? I thought it was pretty decent. The big draw here is that you have two young wrestlers, so like we had with Bad and Smothers, mm -hmm. with another match where there's always some sort of action. There's a little bit more lulls in here, I think, maybe because you need to have maybe more time to help get Bagwell through his spots. This is less, a little less seasoned, maybe. Mm -hmm. But it, it's never it's never slow. I might know was Bagwell loses due to, well, being a dumb babyface and hitting his pinning move inches from the ropes. <laughs> yes, true. He does it right next to the ropes, so Flamingo can very easily reach out and get them. Yes. 
Anyway, throughout these shows, we've seen random young Buff Bagwell matches, but I don't remember that being his move. Yeah, I think he might be in the stage where he's kind of like trying out a few of them to see which one sticks. Oh, like the rock with the shoulder breaker finisher? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I feel like I did see him do a fisherman suplex on uh, Starcade 91 hmm. during the Battle Bowl stuff, maybe, but I can't remember if he was actually using his finisher at that point or not. Oh, okay. It is kind of funny seeing Bagwell being the sort of generic babyface, other than his bright, shiny gold pants. Yes. And Scotty Flamingo playing basically a slight version of his character that you would see later on. Yeah. Obviously with goatee and hilariously dumb top hat, which I believe yes. John liked his hat. John was a fan of the hat, but you were not. Yeah, no, I'm not a fan of the hat, no. I, <laughs> no, no. Nor am I a fan of both Bagwell in general. Yeah. He is tolerable as Marcus Alexander, though. Mm-hmm. A lot of wrestlers, like, they don't really thought of as, like, great wrestlers, but, you know, good wrestlers, maybe. I didn't go, okay, we should watch this match of his mm-hmm. like even Ron simmons who is everyone's like favorite wrestler i can point to stuff like dark Energy 2 that match he had with dark death was really good yeah yeah that was very fun it's much harder for me with people like bagwell I'm like trying to think of like oh this is great buff bagwell match you gotta see i'm like i is there yeah it's gotta be one somewhere i'm sure there's at least a few points that he has in his career where i could look at it and just say yeah that was actually pretty good yeah but it's a little bit more difficult, yeah. Maybe if I can find a match where he loses his Laparka, I might like it better. There you but, go. <laughs> yeah, that'd, be, that'd be the one I'm looking for, I guess. This had a couple strong moments, but was otherwise pretty basic to me. And I, I have to disagree on the speed thing. I think an astonishing amount of this match is occupied by the reverse chin lock spot, considering how short yeah. it is. I just meant more like when they're actually wrestling. I'll give you that. Yeah, definitely. it's definitely slower than the second match. I will heed that one, yeah. The guys were clearly athletic, but they didn't quite seem to be on the same page on some moves, mm-hmm. and there was a bit of mistiming here and there. I did like the early bit where they traded slaps, but then they repeated it, and it kind of lost its impact a little. Yeah, I see that. There wasn't much of note to the rest of the match, though I did like the ending. They did a pretty good quick counter sequence, and the reversal of the roll-up worked smoothly. It was just kind of a generic match, and I'm not honestly sure why this was on pay-per-view, but it was fine. Uh, two things. One is that, that finishing pin they do, I think that's an O'Connor roll, if I get my, my rolls correctly. I, I, think I, I, I know some of them, but not all of them, yeah. I think that's the one. It's not done at the corner normally. It's normally done like off the ropes, like on the side normally. Mm. I mean, I'm sure someone else has done it off the corner before. It's just interesting seeing it like that. The only thing I was going to think is kind of funny is that... So, this is 1992, and Sky Flamingo feature Raven is the surfer guy. But he's not alone in that, because... The Sandman, I know one of your also, your favorite wrestlers from ECW. <laughs> his original gimmick coming in was in fact a surfer. Makes sense given the name. That's why he's called the Sandman. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. So it's apparently it's a future ECW thing, I guess. Being yeah, a surfer yeah. guy. Guess so. Sky Flamingo would have a notable match at Beach Blast where he'd be challenging for the WWE Light Heavyweight Championship. Oh, Buff Bagwell would be uh, working dark matches. Oh. Mind you, only one of them was to be in the company in 1993, so... Yeah. Long-term, you know... Bag- Bagwell wins that particular one. Correct. Yeah. Just when you thought it was safe to go back to the beach... WCW Beach Blast! This summer, beat the heat with a barrage of buff vibes and bodacious babes, because WCW is cruising through the party down on the Gulf Coast. We're talking a sizzling slam fest, one huge scene, a mega rager! It's totally featured! WCW Beach Blast! Beat the heat live! 
Saturday, June 20th. Be there only on pay-per-view. Call your local cable operator for availability. <laughs> oh, we get an ad for Beach Blast. I really like the logo that they have for it the with the wave that's uh, arm flexing its muscles. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, that's that's, that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. They do not have any more information on what will be on the show than they did for Super Bowl last year, but at least they put more effort into the promo instead of just putting on an admittedly nice fanfare and calling it a night. Yeah, that's true. I feel bad for the poor announcer to got to do the surfer guy voice for the middle. Yes. <laughs> Get away, brah. <laughs> we go back to JR and Jesse, who talk up the next match, which involves Junkyard Dog. Jesse says that JYD should have been fined and suspended for interfering in a match at Super Brawl 2, and JR says that Abdullah the Butcher wasn't supposed to be in the ring and shouldn't have been double-teaming with Cactus Jack Ron Simmons. By which I take it to mean that Abdullah and Cactus Jack were double-teaming Ron Simmons, though the way he says it sounds more like Ron Simmons has taken over the Cactus Jack gimmick. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I can't see that one working. Ron Simmons can do a lot of things, but the Cactus Jack gimmick seems like not a good fit. Yeah, I'd say so. JR throws to Super Brawl 2 footage, in which Abdullah the Butcher and Cactus Jack beat up Ron Simmons when JYD, in tuxedo, yeah. comes down to the ring in no particular hurry, and headbutts some security guards before going in to fight off Jack and Abdullah to save Simmons. So our fourth match is Cactus Jack and the bodyguard, Mr. Hughes, versus Ron Simmons and the junkyard dog. The referee for this match is Bill Alfonso, and we're headed to ring two for this one. The feud been going between Cactus Jack and Ron Simmons, and he brought Mr. Hughes in to help him after he has a bit of a falling out between the shows with Abdul the Butcher, who they really had a pretty tempestuous relationship in the yeah, past. Yeah, they're kind of they're on again, off again, friends slash absolute hated enemies that want to kill each other, right? So. Yeah, pretty much. Him and, like him and Terry Funk in a lot of ways, yeah. Yeah. Must be a Mick Foley. That's the Mick Foley thing, I guess. <laughs> He's very terminal relationship with wrestlers. Yeah. There's nothing typically between Hughes and Ron Simmons, it's just it's all Cactus Jack Ron Simmons. Okay. And they're just brought in as fill a tag match. Alright. Mr. Hughes and Cactus Jack have a weird kind of funeral march for their entrance theme. A bit, yeah. Come on, Hughes. There's only one song that goes with the bodyguard. <laughs> <laughs> Hughes spends the entire time going down the entrance ramp practicing the best grimace he can make, as Jesse questions why in the world Cactus Jack of all people would need a bodyguard. Well, I think it's less a bodyguard for him and more a bodyguard for us. Yeah, probably. Jack walks off the entrance ramp and goes back around the stage to hide amongst the curtains. Ron Simmons and Junkyard Dog make their entrance, and Simmons runs ahead, but suddenly Cactus Jack runs out and knocks JYD off the entrance ramp, flings him into the entrance ramp, then dives off the ramp to elbow drop JYD on the concrete floor. That really looks like it should have hurt Jack a lot more than JYD, but JYD's down regardless. <laughs> The way he does that move, especially in concrete, his whole whole what side of his leg and hips just lands yeah. in concrete. He doesn't even really have his point of his elbow down. He sort of has his the bottom of his arm sort of grazes you as you yeah, go. Yeah, yeah, He takes very good care of the person he's doing the move to. Oh yeah, and very poor care of himself. <laughs> That's accurate. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Simmons, who was brawling with Hughes, notices and charges over to back body drop. Jack on the entrance ramp, but the damage is done, and JYD is carted off by WCW staff and Mike Atkins. Jack laughs madly in the ring and asks the camera, Can't you see I finished him? Jesse proposes ringing the bell for a countout victory and just moving on, but Jack keeps calling for Simmons to come back out as Hughes grimaces at the camera. 
Ron Simmons charges down the ramp, and a brawl erupts in ring one rather than ring two, with Jack and Hughes overwhelming Simmons with double-team strikes until he ducks a double clothesline and takes both down with his own. Jack and Hughes roll out, and Jack makes disturbing squealing noises until Hughes finally rolls back in and Alfonso rings the bell. Jack climbs back up on the apron, but Alfonso orders him back down, as this is now apparently a singles match. Alfonso is very strict about the rules for a guy who'd be famous for being ECW ref. (laughs) Yeah. And manager. Actual match number four, therefore, is Mr. Hughes versus Ron Simmons with referee Bill Alfonso. I see, I like my summary better. Mine, Mr. Hughes with Cactus Jack versus Ron Simmons without JYD. (laughs) There you go. And yeah, this could have been Cactus Jack versus Ron Simmons, but we live with what we got. Yep. Simmons destroys Hughes early on, including a monstrous clothesline, and JR builds up their shared football history as defensive linemen. Jack comes over to give Hughes advice, and Jesse asks where Jack played defensive line. JR quips, I think the New Mexico Psychiatric Institute. (laughs) Okay, then. Hughes challenges for a test of strength and uses a cheap shot to take control, then uses big clubbing blows and loads of choking to wear Simmons down. He earns two counts off an elbow drop and knee drop. And JR and Jesse are confused about whether Jack can wrestle until someone finally gets word to JR that this is indeed a singles match, several minutes into it. (laughs) Simmons earns a two count with a sunset flip, but while Alfonso warns Hughes about more choking, Jack sneaks in some strikes. Jesse says, that's fine, this should have been a tag match anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Jesse also wonders who decided that Hughes would wrestle instead of Jack. I would like to know that too, so I could give them a very stern lecture. Exactly. Simmons dodges a Hughes charge and clotheslines him down, back body drops him with impressive ease, then nails his great spine buster. He shoulder blocks the charging Jack and gets in the three-point stance, and as Hughes stands, Simmons clips his leg, sending him butt over tea kettle, and gets the three count and the win. Jack tries to attack again right away, but Simmons just shoulder blocks him down again. Simmons celebrates briefly and makes his way out of the ring before the heels can recover. Jesse decries Simmons for going after Hughes' knee and says that'd be an illegal hit in football, but JR points out this is not football. <laughs> Thoughts on this one? This is one of the ones where all the setup for the match, for me, was more interesting than the actual match. Because mm-hmm. Jack's crazy promo where he's like, talk squealing toward the camera, waiting <laughs> for Simmons to come out is really good. <laughs> talk squealing, I like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the way I describe that. He's uh, very, very telegraphed Nick attack. Yes. I guess you could assume that JYD and Simmons aren't, like, watching from the back, because there's, like, not monitors back there, maybe, at this point. They're literally, like, right at the entrance mm. to go in at that point, right. I think. They're being prepped to go out there. Right. So it kind of makes more sense than the normal sneak attack to me in that case. That's true, yeah. But yeah, as I'm with you, the, the wrong guy stays in, in this match on the heel side, for sure. Yeah. I almost thought they would do a thing where JYD would sort of come back, try and help out the match, and maybe win it, or you know, get pinned or something, not just actually have him stay out of the match. Yeah, I was surprised that he stayed out completely. I guess that, that does a lot to build up Cactus Jack, which is nice, but sure. I was I was shocked that he didn't come out at all. Yeah, I was expecting more of that, too. Mm-hmm. On the plus side, since it's Ron Simmons and Mr. Hughes, while the action isn't that great, you get to see Simmons really sort of control the match, which I would definitely wouldn't like as much as Cactus Jack, because I would see more back and forth there so it kind of works in that sense if like if you're going to book this match the way you are and have it be so one-sided instant advantage it's definitely better than beat up mr hughes and be up to jack 
You you feel like this was one-sided in Simmons' advantage? Well, early... Like, the early going in the end, sure, yeah. Early going, well, it's, I don't know. It's, yeah, maybe I'm not as one-sided as I make it sound. I think you fell asleep during this match. Because <laughs> <laughs> he was in control for an, an intolerable amount of time. <laughs> it's, it's, I'm probably just blocking it out, honestly. <laughs> or that I'm just watching Hatches Jack on the outside more than the yeah, match. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's what it is. The parts, the parts I vividly remember are the intro part where he's, he's winning and then he takes back control. So if I blocked in the middle of the match, that might be what it is. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I've seen people take that three-point stance move a lot more dynamically than Mr. Hughes did. My, my no is that he's sandbagged, though I'm, maybe that's not the right word for it. I don't think he's so much sandbagging as just heavy. Yeah, I don't know, maybe. I've seen, that, I've seen other people take it. Like, so much I think where it's, I don't think it's talent, but... There's one where I believe it's uh, the British Bulldog takes that from like from Mongo and looks way more dynamic than this. Mm-hmm. Yes, I don't, I'm not saying intentionally, intentionally wouldn't take the move, but it's underwhelming seeing him take that move, I guess. Yeah, I, I would have liked for them to end the match with the Spine Buster. That looked awesome. Yeah. And the, the three-point stance is a very underwhelming finish to it. Yeah. I don't want him using that move. That's the whole, you're, you play football, so you do this move thing. But Yeah. Just reverse which one's the finisher. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for me, the first and last 30 seconds of this match were pretty good. Yeah. The rest was extremely dull. Mm-hmm. Last year, when Mr. Hughes was the big cat, I kind of liked some of his power moves and his general character. But this year, where did that wrestler go? Mm-hmm. To his credit, he took Simmons' moves pretty well, and he made him look strong. But Hughes' offense consisted almost entirely of basic punches, clubs, and choking. Yes. Aside from the start and end where Simmons was in control, the only thing of interest in this match was JR and Jesse bickering about what the rules of the match even were. <laughs> well, that and how well Hughes' sunglasses stayed on. That's true, yeah. Given that. That's very impressive. Very dull match, made all the worse by watching Cactus Jack outside the ring and thinking how much better this would be with him in the ring. <laughs> yeah. So, I think this is about the end of the whole Cactus Jack, Ron Simmons things. At least on pay-per-view, kind of tapers out at this point. Doubly strange that he doesn't fight Cactus in this match, then. Yeah. They might have some other action between now and Beach Blast, but it seems to be done by Beach Blast, for sure. Okay. On the plus side, Jack would move up in the world. He would involve well, with Sting after this. Oh, that's positive. Yeah. He has that match at Beach Blast instead of, you know, something like this. Well, good for him, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> We go back to Tony and Eric, and Tony tells us that JYD is getting medical attention. Tony says that Jack is unpredictable, but predictable in that he always wants to hurt someone. Huh? (laughs) Yeah, uh huh? Tony and Eric talk up the next match, which will be Super Invader versus Todd Champion. Tony says this is an important match for Champion, as it's the first time he'll be in singles competition on pay-per-view. And Eric says that Super Invader may be just as devastating as Big Van Vader. I'm pretty sure someone could win a false advertising lawsuit against WCW for that one. Yes. <laughs> I'm disappointed that he's not Todd the Champion. Because, <laughs> I mean, let's be honest, there's no way your actual last name is Champion. Probably not, yeah. So it's not believable as a, as a, as a real fake last name. Just go all in with it. Yeah. Our fifth match is Todd Champion versus Super Invader with Harley Race. The referee for this match is Mike Atkins, and we're in ring one for this one again, because the last match was supposed to be in ring two, but decided to be in ring one for reasons. (laughs) Everything about that match was for reasons, so. (laughs) Yeah. 
So at this point, Vader is splitting his time between WCW and New Japan. There's a period around this time where he basically he thinks he can work both of them pretty steadily. You know, might as well get you know get two paychecks instead of one, which I don't blame him. Fair enough. Yeah, he's not around as much as he normally would have been, and as he will be later on once he formally commits to WCW over New Japan. So at this point, they had to keep Harley Race active and sort of put him with them. So they decided to slap a mask on Hercules Hernandez, aka Assassin Number Two. Yep. Imply that he's Asian in some way. And call him Super Invader. <laughs> yeah, the Super Invader is a large dude and a red mask with a bandana that looks like the Japanese Rising Sun design. Mm-hmm. So, of course, his build is from Thailand and is from neither. Yes. <laughs> and he has a weird, like, neon-colored glove as well. Yes, that is, it's super strange. And they keep building up like, oh, there must be something special about it, but I don't think that anything really comes of it in particular. No, it's not like a coal miner's glove situation. Yeah, you, you yeah. think it's going to be something else. And as we noted already, Todd Champion tag partner, Firebreaker Chip, is randomly in a different tag match without him on the beginning of the show, which they didn't tape. Yeah. So he's kind of in a weird limbo spot here where previously his, his team actually was the U.S. tag champions. Admittedly, that didn't mean a whole lot, as I've already gone over. Yeah. But still, still accomplishment nonetheless. <laughs> Todd Champion and his weird kinda sorta sailor, kinda sorta Olympics uniform are from WCW Special Forces. It's not a place. Yes, very good point. (laughs) Jesse jokes that he looks like the captain of the love boat. (laughs) Champion looks to me like he could not decide what his gimmick was. Mm -hmm. Like, is it military? Is it, are you an Olympian? Is it like, what's, what's going on here? He's just America, I guess. I guess so. They should have, not that it would ruin that nice jacket. They should have found a way to turn part of Sting's USA jacket into pants he could wear. Ugh. Don't 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 associate Sting's America jacket with Todd Champion. I'm just saying you can get more used to that jacket later, making a <laughs> nice pants out of it. And as you noted, Super Invader is Raymond Fernandez, better known as Hercules Hernandez, or Assassin Number Two from way back at Starcade '83, or as John would have put it, not the cuddly one. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. Yes. <laughs> this is our second person, I believe, that we haven't officially talked about since the very first show true yeah i didn't think about that real flashbacks about what is this nine years down the line from that uh yes yeah correct race and champion yell at each other so invader cheap shots champion and uses overhand chops an awkward clothesline and a good elbow drop test of strength and champion deflects a kick and fires back but invader keeps striking and uses a nice side slam before some exciting choking Jesse wonders why Invader is wearing a mask, and JR says that it's to hide his facial expressions, so you can't tell if you've hurt him. Or, you know, to hide his nationality, more likely. That's more accurate, yes. Jesse decides it must be because Invader is ugly. I mean, I don't want to go there. (laughs) During an Invader chin lock, someone bellows, boring. Normally, I'm annoyed at that kind of thing, but I totally agree here. Invader chucks Champion through the ropes to the railing and hits an elbow off the apron, then nearly drops Champion on a slam. Mm-hmm. Back in, he does a much better slam and tries nothing in particular off the top, but Champion gets a boot up and lands punches as Invader's mask now has a weird lump in it. Strange Champion clothesline slash splash, an awkward jumping back elbow spot, but Invader dumps him on the top rope and hits a nice kneeling powerbomb for the three count and the win. Invader and Race celebrate. And they show replays where the powerbomb looks a little bit worse uh, in the angles that they choose, so they should have left it to the first angle. (laughs) 
you can tell in the replays that he kind of like slips out a little bit early. Oh, I see. But it it still ends up looking okay. Thoughts on this one? It's okay. I mean, it's not long. Mm-hmm. It's, it's bad in the first compliment matches. It's not long, but you know, <laughs> yes. hey, what is this? It was over quickly. <laughs> yes. No. Uh, it's not like the the one with Shockmaster. Yeah. Oh, good. It's over quickly. No, it's not that bad. I mean, I was really negative the first time I watched it with you on rewatch. I'm not gonna say it's good, but it's definitely better than I thought it was. Okay. In a sense that I know exactly what this match is. This match is purely a squash match for the Super Invader. Mm-hmm. So looking at it that way, looking at this is like a, you know, WCW Saturday night match to build them up. For some reason it's on pay-per-view. I'm a little more positive than I was initially on it. Mm-hmm. Gimmick aside, most of his moves he can do pretty well. I know you obviously you point out a couple of things he didn't quite do right. There's definitely some point where there's awkwardness, like what he's going to do, like when he does his um, act handle off to the outside. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not sure what he's going to start with, but then he just goes there. And, okay, go through that now. And quite a required to do, Champion does bump pretty well for him. Champion's a, by no means a small guy, so it's nice to see him not you know, taking the minimal bump you'd have to take to make the match look good. So maybe he's, he's at least committed to this match, whether he's really personally invested or not. Yeah, absolutely. I, I will agree with that. Champion, um, whatever else I might say about his ring work, he sells pretty well. Yeah. Like taking that bump to the outside when he rolls and hits and runs into the barricade. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. He could have yeah. done it without hitting that. He actually took the extra effort there. Yeah, he put some extra effort into that. I'll give him credit for that. Mm-hmm. Why was this on pay-per-view? <laughs> that's a running theme of the show so yeah. far overall, but yes. Like I said, Champion sells pretty well, but that's really the only thing that I can actually say about his ring work. Invader is a big, slow, muscly guy, mm-hmm. and he does, like you said, have some pretty good power moves, but both seem to get a few moves wrong, and the chin lock spot here feels quite long for how short this match is. Mm-hmm. The powerbomb to end the match was fine, but otherwise there's really nothing of interest in this one, and I don't understand why it was on the show. Yes. The thing with Todd Champion is, I was thinking about how, like, like what could he have done, like, overall in wrestling, not necessarily just this match. Because uh-huh. looking at him, he has a good look. Yes. I know his yes. tights are a little confusing. If Todd Champion's staying backstage next to Sting, and they aren't wearing, he's not wearing his face paint, they look pretty similar. Are you going to propose Todd Champion as fake Sting? No, no, no. I am okay. not. <laughs> no, we, we already have enough of those. <laughs> yeah. No, no. My point is that he has so much of Sting's look and build, but he never has the extra stuff, or he never shows it, mm-hmm. except that Sting does, which made Sting who he was. Yeah. That's not the physical similarity that's kind of interesting. You can see what one person did with extra training, what have you, extra talent, what, whatever the, the sort of difference in their careers that got in the way are. Yeah. And I'll I'll give you like, he definitely has a good look and I don't want to be too hard on the guy. I feel like, you know, he's not in WCW for all that long, really. No, at least not that we get to see. And it feels like maybe if you give him some more time or give him some more seasoning, he might've been able to achieve something, but it just feels like he never really gets there from what we see. I don't know if that's on him or on WCW. Most likely it's on both. Yeah, I think so too. This would be Todd Champion's last WCW match for about two years. Case in point. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he would leave after this show. He'd show up in 1994 when they were doing the storyline with Steven Regal as the TV champion, taking on all comers. He would, he would challenge him at some point in 94. Super Invader's fortune is definitely a bit better in that he stayed around after this match. 
they kept him around as part of the Harley Race connection, but they never really committed to him going further because they, I think they realized what his limitations were. Yeah. And plus, you can get actual Vader, so... Right. You need super in-Vader when you have Vader. Well, what they should have done on uh, on Starcade 93 is had the Flair versus Vader match and then had Super Invader face Buddy Landell. Oh, yeah. There you go. Could have had the, uh, the budget version and the real version on the same show. <laughs> that would have been interesting, actually, yeah. His big moment is Concert Champions 20. He's booked in a 4-4 four four elimination match to many men the show. So the team is... Make sure you don't get too, too strong with the comparisons here. Okay. So his tag partners are Rick Rude, Jake Roberts, and Actual Vader. Oof. Team him against Sting, Nikita Koloff, and the Steiner Brothers. One of these things is not like the other. <laughs> <laughs> On the upside, he would technically come out victorious, even though he's actually the first person eliminated. Because it's an elimination match, his team would win in the end. So he does actually win. Well, there you go. Sort of. He accomplished something. Yeah. In that he let other people accomplish something for him. Yes. <laughs> As I've, I'm sure I mentioned at some point before, his greatest team would, of course, be going to Japan Pro Wrestling, teaming up with Scott Norton and forming the Jurassic Powers. That is pretty good. Yes. JR and Jesse propose a Vader Super Invader team up. Would that be called the Big Van Invaders? Yeah, I'd go with that <laughs> one. But seriously, leave Vader alone, guys. Yeah. They turn to discussing Sting's rib injury at the hands of Vader, and Jesse says that Sting is coming back too soon and he's going to pay the price in war games. Our sixth match is Richard Morton versus Big Josh. The referee for this match is Bill Alfonso, and we're in ring two for this one. So in the wake of the end of the World Six-Man titles being a thing, the York Foundation just kind of broke up and stopped being a thing. At least saw Terry Taylor formed a team with Greg Valentine that didn't exactly go that far. Yeah. We saw already. And Thomas Rich is in a dark match on this show. Yeah, I, I do. On, like, as goofy as that gimmick was, I do feel that's a shame. Because Taylor seemed to be enjoying himself in it and he had did. so much character Yeah, in that gimmick. Where tonight it just felt like he didn't do anything outside of the entrance. Yeah. Be curious to see what a six-man tag match with your foundation would be. Yeah. Because you have Morton, who's a good worker, and you have Taylor. Rich is eh, not my favorite, but be curious to see you as a, as a unit if they work well together. Yeah, yeah. I'd really be interested in that, honestly. Yeah. With that in mind, Richard Morton can't go back to being Ricky Morton for some reason. I don't know why. Yeah. And his tag partner is off somewhere else. So he's basically just around kind of doing random matches like this. Okay. And as noted before, Big Joss is a previous holder of the U.S. Tag Championships, which is still weird to think about. <laughs> I need to find a picture of him wearing the belt just to see what that's like. I mean, I guess if we go with a flannel shirt. Yeah. Like, I just can't picture the visual of Ron Simmons and Big Josh standing together wearing those belts. It does seem weird. It seems like a, like a battleable thing that happened by accident. Yeah. <laughs> Richard Morton comes out in a very nice sparkly purple jacket. Big Josh comes out with a wooden think it's an axe handle? Yes, I believe so. Jesse says that Big Josh's advantage is that he smells awful as he doesn't do his laundry or bathe often. <laughs> That's an advantage, I guess? Yeah, yeah. Morton runs around the ring to stay away from Big Josh and tries a shove, but Josh shoves him down easily, knocks him down for two, and uses a big stalling slam before running on top of his chest, the log roll. <laughs> After an eye rake, Morton lands strikes and rips Josh's flannel shirt. <gasps> 
Jesse says that that proves how rotten Josh's clothes have gotten from lack of washing. (laughs) Josh lands big punches and a weird forearm punch, but Morton dodges the charging elbow in the corner and hits a belly-to-back suplex on the rebound. Morton inverted atomic drop, boot choking, and turnbuckle rams, and Morton earns a two-count after dodging a Josh elbow drop, as JR says that Morton outquicked Josh there. Why not? (laughs) Okay. See, I'm not the only one that can make up words. That's true. Morton snapped Mare into a knee drop for two, and he tries an arm bar as Jesse says that if Josh put a headlock on you, the stench would knock you out in 35 seconds. I'm surprised he gave him that long. So in hindsight, he just done that in a way. Yeah. What are you doing not doing that move? Morton tries a monkey flip, but Josh stomps him and hits a slam and elbow drop for two. Morton gets a back fist and works Josh's arm as I finally notice a couple dudes in the front row wearing honest-to-goodness tuxedos. Did you get lost on the way to the opera? (laughs) It happens. Which is such a weird thing. All these fans in relatively normal outfits and then, hello guys in white tuxes. Like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I thought for sure that they were like part of an angle that was going to come up, but no such thing. Some sort of invading force, yeah. Josh finally counters a whip with a kick and hits a great belly-to-belly suplex, then gets two off a nice double-arm suplex. Morton jabs the eyes, but Josh catches him on a second-rope dive and hits an inverted atomic drop, running double-axe handle, and finally a running-seated senton, the northern exposure, for the three-count and the win. Alfonso accidentally hits Josh's leg on the third count, so we don't really hear the impact, so at first I thought it was a false finish, as did Jesse. Yeah. And Josh actually looks kind of confused after the match as he poses in victory, so I kind of wonder if that was actually supposed to be the end or not. Thoughts on this one? Like a lot of the show, it's it's okay. It's got good moments, but I guess it's definitely an improvement over the previous match mm-hmm. in that regard. So there's two things that are weird to me about this match. First is the obvious one, is that Richard Morton is playing a heel it's so in, a singles, in a singles match. <laughs> so he's really not playing to his strengths here. Yeah. He can't be in peril at any point. Yeah, yeah. The other thing is, so, I didn't think Big Josh did a bad job here, because he's Matt Bourne, obviously, mm-hmm. if you'll know that. Was definitely a good wrestler. But my problem was that, so he's playing this the guy who lives in the woods, and, you know, like, works and chops tree, down trees, and, like, plays with bears. But then he's, like, throwing suplexes. Yeah. That doesn't really seem to... To work. I, I agree. He he wrestles perfectly well as a big power wrestler, mm-hmm. but he doesn't seem to be doing anything character related other than the log roll. Yeah. It's it's strange. I don't know how you wrestle like a lumberjack, but this is not it. If you take someone who doesn't really know how to wrestle that well, like if you had taken Perkins Hernandez, for instance, given him the big Josh thing, and say, yeah, just, you know, throw basically body slams, clothesline, and punch, and kick. Mm-hmm. And, you know, see if he can do the log roll, and if he, he could or not. That might have worked. Yeah. Because he had a similar look anyways, but yeah. There's a disconnect for me between the character and the him wrestling, which is very distracting. Yeah, I could see you doing this if you start it out that he does simpler stuff, and then you actually have a storyline where someone's like, hey, man, let me show you how to wrestle. And then he starts pulling in the moves he could actually already do. Yeah. That, then you could make that work. But it is a weird juxtaposition. It, it doesn't quite fit. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Or it'd be fine, honestly, even if they did do that and then they just actually treated it as surprising and had like a storyline explanation for it ultimately. Yeah. Then that would work, yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I'm totally with you. It is so weird to see Ricky Morton as the heel. <laughs> yeah. I'm hardwired to cheer for him when he's getting beaten up. 
<laughs> so yeah, <laughs> he definitely does everything he can to make Big Josh look strong, though. And Josh has good, big swinging strikes and some nice suplexes, and he looks impressive as a power wrestler. Like I said, I, I do find his choice of a finisher quite weird for this character as well. Yeah, it works a lot better when he's doink. Mm-hmm. He at least manages to look like a big tough guy, so it works all right. I just feel like this match would have been better with the heel and face alignments reversed. Mm. But between Morton's expert selling and Josh's raw strength, it worked. Big Josh would leave WCW not too long after this, by the end of the summer, and of course with his most famous character, Doink the Clown. Yeah. It's a reminder, he is the good Doink, <laughs> and then in that he is the evil Doink. Yes. <laughs> and not the bad Doink, which is of course the face Doink. Yeah. Poor distinctions there. Confusing, important distinctions there. Yes. Morton would also leave by Summer's End, so this match really has a lot of stakes going forward, where he would jump ship to Smoky Mountain Wrestling in August of that year to join his partner and reform the Rock and Roll Express baby. Which is pretty much how he should always be. Yes. <laughs> Up through 2019, and in 2020, you're still doing it, so clearly he agrees with you. So, something is working. <laughs> yeah. JR throws to Tony and Eric, who discuss the upcoming light heavyweight title match. That's light heavyweight champion Fly and Brian Pillman versus the Z-Man. They are friends and former tag team champs facing each other. Tony can't believe he's going to see it. Eric builds up that both are known for their aerial attacks. Z-Man certainly is. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But he thinks that Pillman will keep it on the mat and win. Tony throws to a video of an interview with Z-Man, accompanied by Pillman, from WCW Saturday Night. Time after time after time, the Z-Man gets on a roll, I started to get out of the slump, I got things together, and you two punks, JT Southern and Scotty the Flamingo, jump on my back. You know, anytime you two punks... Want a shot at me? I'll put the title on the line anytime either one of you two want. What title are you talking about? You're talking about my title? Let's not get ahead of yourself, okay? Hey, wait a minute, Brian. I, it's national TV. They jumped me from behind before, as you know. You know what kind of a temper I got. And I want some revenge on these two, Brian. I didn't mean your title. Like, Brian, you're my best friend. Tom, I know you're hot at them. They're not exactly uh, at the top of my list. But I'll tell you what, I've never known you to look past an opponent. I've come out here tonight to help you out, just like I did all the times we tagged up together, and you got no gratitude for it. Help me out. You help me out? You know, to tell you the truth, Brian, a lot of people have been saying since you got the belt around your waist, you've been a little bit too generous with your help, Brian. I was fine on my own. You know something, Tom? We don't have to wait till tomorrow to do this. We can do it right now if you want. Do it right now. Guys, wait just a second. Wait. <laughs> he called him Tom. You know things are serious. Oh, yeah. Really good segment here. I'm really glad that they showed this. Yes. It built some great tension between two face wrestlers. Pillman's stunned reaction to Z-Man offering to put Pillman's own title on the line before Z-Man's even won it is great, and he's got a heck of a legitimate complaint against Z-Man there. But you can actually kind of buy Z-Man's excuse that he was just angry at the guys who attacked him and not thinking about what he said, too. Yeah. This got me quite interested in seeing the match and wondering just how these guys would fight it out. Will they act like respectful rivals or really let their anger control them? So great use of the video recap here. I said we had more of that throughout the show, assuming there's yeah, build up at all. Definitely. Yeah. 
I feel like at least some of these matches probably had more emotion that could have been brought out by doing something like this. Yeah. And this is actually, this is the only one. There's not one for war games or anything either. That's true, yeah, yeah. So it's it's surprising. They assume you know all that stuff, I guess. But they do a really terrific job with this, I thought. So it sounds like they basically already had a title match scheduled between them, but Z-Man got a little ahead of himself there. Correct, yes. Our seventh match is Z-Man versus Flyin' Brian Pillman for Pillman's WCW Light Heavyweight Championship. The referee for this one is Mike Atkins, and we're in ring one for this one. Z-Man looks surprised when his pyro goes off, giving a little jump. He talks to the camera on the way down to the ring and says it's time to even the score with Pillman. JR says that Z-Man must be a favorite for Jesse since they're both from Minnesota, but Jesse says that his favorite Minnesota wrestler is Arn Anderson. Note that Arn is from Minnesota in kayfabe only. He's actually from Georgia. That's true. Yeah. Z-Man and Jesse are legit Minnesotans. Mm-hmm. Pillman gets some loud pyro and has a cool black and white jacket. JR says that Z-Man and Pillman are still friends, but Jesse scoffs at that and wonders which one was going to cheat first. <laughs> we start off with a really sarcastic handshake from Pillman. <laughs> Does a great job with that. Oh, yeah. They trade holds and leapfrogs and try simultaneous drop kicks and simultaneous flying clotheslines, the latter of which ends up with them linking arms midair and whirling around in a cool-looking spot. Oh, yeah. JR points out that the two think alike and also know each other so well that they didn't have to study each other to prepare. Pillman gets one off a knee drop, but Z-Man gets a series of arm holds, though he can't quite lever Pillman into a pin. Jesse keeps predicting cheap shots, but they stay clean. <laughs> nice counter of a Z-Man back elbow into a head scissors by Pillman, though Z-Man does nearly come down on his head. Z-Man gets a series of two counts off a backslide, roll-up, and sunset flip, so Pillman slaps him hard and works his leg with a drop toe hold, Indian death lock, ankle lock, knee hold, and more, before Z-Man dodges an attempted flipping sentin, and Pillman lands hard on his back. JR notes that Pillman's back was hurt coming into this match. Z-Man grins and works the back with stomps, a suplex for two and a half, knee strikes, and a backbreaker, but Pillman gets the knees up on a splash, and Jesse notes that Z-Man should have slapped on a Boston Crab instead. Pillman goes back to the legwork and uses a half-crab, and Jesse says he's using the smarter strategy. Pillman angrily taunts Z-Man. Z-Man counters another leg hold with a enziguri for two, but hits the turnbuckle on a knee strike, and Pillman puts on a figure-four leg lock to JR's surprise. They slap each other hard during the hold, and Z-Man manages to turn it over, but Pillman turns it back over, but they end up in the ropes to force a break. Pillman lands hard chops, and Z-Man counters a sunset flip into a power slam for two and nine-tenths, but Pillman counters a clothesline with a crucifix pin for two and a half. Attempted Pillman superplex, but Z-Man pushes him off and hits a crossbody so hard, Pillman flips and actually lands after Z-Man. That was a rough <laughs> one, yeah. <laughs> I have never seen a crossbody hit like that before. Z-Man drapes an arm for two. Z-Man hurls a charging Pillman skyward for two and three quarters, and Pillman dodges an elbow drop at the last possible moment. Yes. Z-Man's legs give out twice on whip attempts, but as Pillman goes up top, Z-Man springs to his feet, revealing he was faking, and boots the leaping Pillman hard in the face. Ow. Mm -hmm. It gets two as Pillman makes the ropes. Z-Man aggressively kicks the fallen Pillman and goes up top, calculating the probabilities. <laughs> <laughs> He tries a top rope drop kick, 
but Pillman bats it aside and vaults over him into a pin for the three count and the win. The bigger news, though, is that Z-Man incorrectly evaluated the possibility of a dropkick off the top rope. <laughs> That's true, his match was off, yeah. Forgot to carry the one. Ah, that what happens. Pillman leaves the ring with his belt. It's kind of sad to me that there wasn't any kind of handshake or reconciliation or alternately a spiteful confrontation there. Feels like they, they left a little bit of story on the table there. Yeah, I, could, I think they're going to be a follow-up to this like later in the show when they just don't do it. Yeah. Thoughts on that one? I thought it was a really pretty strong match. It was really solid with the sort of motion that got through all the holes and strikes. They definitely put more into this character-wise than like almost all the shows so far. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The story they tell is really nice, that they're definitely friendly at first. Obviously, with some tension, as we got from the video package. But as things go on, it definitely becomes more clear that there's more to it than just friendly rivalry with them, which is a nice mm-hmm. touch. Yeah, you, you can definitely sense, like, at the beginning, there's the tension, but they're going to try and keep it more towards the wrestling holds or, or things. But then in the late match, you definitely see that not only, one, they're trying to hurt each other with the holds, going after weaknesses, mm-hmm. and two, they, like, really just start slapping each other or disrespecting each other more. Yes. It seems like the strongest match, too, as far as Ken wrestling goes. That so much of the story is having just the right counter, just the right time. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that was really good. It's a Dark Horse match and Night Pick. I, I, I'm in total agreement. Very, very nice match here. Mm-hmm. And the car badly needed something this good. Yes. The two brought a lot of emotion, like you were saying, and really carried through the tension and energy that they'd had in the buildup shown in the video. Yes. So from the start, it felt confrontational and aggressive. But they really transitioned in style from the early match, based more about just trying to prove they were the best, to the middle and late, based around angrily striking each other as frustration grew, and trying to hurt each other, like I was saying before. No one actually cheats during the match, true, yeah. despite Jesse's best efforts, Yeah, but both feel like they get very, very close to being willing, spending the entire match on the edge of turning heel. An excellent mix of mat work, strikes, and some really dynamic acrobatics, intermixed with a good story of two friends-turned-rivals that work together so long that they know everything the other's going to try and can counter it, and frequently even try the same thing at the same time. Yeah. (laughs) A couple spots do get a little bit sloppy, but it does not spoil a really great match. This was exactly what I needed at this point in the show. (laughs) Yes, for sure. (laughs) One thing I think is kind of interesting, too, is that Especially comparing him year to year watching these shows, Tom Zink seems like at this point he dropped a lot of mass. He's still in shape throughout, but he's definitely less bulky on this show than he normally is. Yeah, yeah, I'll agree on that. He doesn't look like small or anything, but no. if you compare him to prior years, it, it looks like a slimmer Tom Zink. Yeah, which really pushes the idea that he's trying to work the fast paced, mm-hmm. longer turf technical match. Yep. For sure, yeah. Yeah, I thought this was great, and um, these guys did a terrific job. Mm-hmm. This is by far the best Tom Zink performance as well. I, I I agree with that. Not that he's been bad on earlier ones, but just this one was like, oh my gosh, so much emotion. Yeah. On, on the other ones, he's often the, I'm going to perform in the match and do my moves and everything, but not necessarily be that great about the emotion of it. Yeah, like the, the, the Terry Taylor situation, yeah. Yeah, you got the full picture with him in this match. Yeah. Definitely nice to see more of this in his career than what we got. Absolutely, yeah. 
Obviously, as I mentioned earlier, Sky Flamingo will be challenging for the title on the next show. In contrast, Tom Zink would work a dark match with JYD and Big Josh oh. against Richard Morton, Tracy Smothers, who is still around, if by Wikipedia is saying otherwise, <laughs> and DDP. Okay, well, you know, that that might be okay. Yeah. Gosh damn, it's a dark match. It is, especially given, like we were just saying, this, this appears to be Tom Zink kind of finally finding his footing on like a full character standpoint. Yeah. So it would have been nice to see if he could carry that forward or not. Yeah. Absolutely. We get the Beach Blast promo again, and JR says that the card will be released this coming weekend. One wonders why it couldn't be ready for the show, so they could actually have something more to tell us, rather than running a basic ad over and over. That would be nice, yeah. JR transitions to talking about the upcoming Steiners versus Fujinami and Izuka match, and Jesse says that the Steiners are considered the greatest tag team in the world, and they're going to have a chance to prove it here. JR asks why the Steiners want the IWGP titles when they have the best prize in pro wrestling, the WCW World Tag Titles. And Jesse says that's because the Steiners are gluttons. <laughs> <laughs> Match 8 is Fujinami Tatsumi and Izuka Takayuki versus the Steiner brothers, Rick and Scott, to determine the number one contenders for the IWGP Tag Team Championship. The referee for this match is Randy Anderson, and we're in ring two for this one. Back in November, the Steiner brothers lost the IWGP tag title to Muda under his actual name, as Kiji Mudo. Okay. And Roshi Hase, the future WWE International World Champion. <laughs> that team has also lost the title to someone else. Okay. We're now quite a few months since that title loss, so now two different teams that aren't either of those of those two are challenging number contendership for the tag titles. It's a little weird. Yeah. They're not fighting Muda and Hase. Yeah, it's interesting. You, you wonder where the other guys came from. Exactly, yeah. Maybe New Japan makes sense, I don't know. I guess if Muda and Hase wanted a shot, they probably would just get one being former champions. Right. And maybe the Steiners did get one that's not mentioned anywhere, I don't know. Yeah. There's a long know. time gap between the two matches, so... Which was thing, maybe if I... If I was following both at the time, I'd go, oh, I know this this happened, blah, 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 this happened, but yeah. yeah. Two other things worth noting. This is a non-title match, despite the Steiners, as mentioned, being the World Tag Team Champions, right. which is a little weird. The other thing is that there's no mention of Tatsumi Fujinami's previous appearances, since they involve Ric Flair. <laughs> True. <laughs> Former NWA World Heavyweight Champion he was? Yeah. Depending on whose company you are the results from, either the DQ finish or a we won by a pinfall. So yeah, <laughs> that we'll discuss that more when we cover that that show. It's very confusing that way that was handled between two companies. Yeah, yeah. Fujinami and Izuka have some awesome rock flute music. It's very Xeno Saga. It does. Yeah, I was thinking that too. <laughs> Fujinami has a really cool dragon logo on his robe and a great mustache. I was going to say, this is an interesting year for people having goatees that normally do, because Harley Race had one as well. Yeah, true, true. When the Steiners enter, Scott does his poses on the turnbuckle of Ring 1 before joining the others in Ring 2. Habit, I guess. Yeah. Jesse says this is about the battle between American and Japanese automakers. It is not. <sighs> Scott and Fujinami start off, and a rapid counter sequence ends with the Scott Fireman's carry takeover for one and two counts. Scott screws up a backflip slam counter to a Fujinami power slam, mm. yeah. but does the move properly on a charging Izuka. 
Steiner line to Fujinami, and Azuka tags in and gets a two-count off a top-rope flipping Sunton, then counters a counter of a Boston Crab into a flip-over pin for a couple one-counts. <laughs> Scott bridges out and hits a double underhook powerbomb, then carries Azuka to Rick. Rick tags in with a top-rope elbow drop to the suspended Azuka, but as they fall, the side of Rick's leg lands hard on Azuka's face. Mm-hmm. It gets two, and you can see blood dripping from Azuka's nose. Yeah. Rick puts on a chin lock, but Izuka scoots across the ring to tag Fujinami, and Rick just clearly lets him. <laughs> you can you can see the communication in the camera angle between Rick and yeah. Fujinami. They're looking at each other, and there's probably going to be lips you can tell what they're saying, but yeah. he lets that, lets that happen, yeah. They can tell something went wrong, and the guy needs to rest for a bit. <laughs> yes. Fujinami fights Rick and Scott in turn and suffers a two-count off a Rick elbow drop and several holds, but lands some hard strikes of his own before lifting Rick onto his shoulders and tagging Izuka for a crossbody, but Rick turns that into a power slam off Fujinami's shoulders for two. Awesome spot, but let the poor guy recover from the first hit. (laughs) Also, the rotation on that counter was very tight. Yes, yeah. It was inches from, from disaster. Yes. Yeah, Izuka does not have great luck with Rick Steiner in this match. You should really stay away from him, yes. Yeah. Izuka lands hard strikes, but Rick gets an elbow drop for two, and Izuka tags right back out. Fujinami works Rick's leg with hard kicks and ankle and leg holds, though Rick manages a couple roll-ups for two. Tagged to Izuka for a very vicious ankle hold, that Rick manages to reverse into a pin for two a couple times, and Rick brings in Scott to get two counts off a tilt-a-whirl slam, double chicken wing, and pump handle slam, as the Steiners destroy the poor guy. Izuka is an absolute champ for taking all this. Yes. Cool spot as Izuka counters an arm hold by going for the leg, but Scott rolls with him to pin Izuka for one. Izuka makes the ropes and tags Fujinami without Scott noticing. Fujinami leaps off the top rope to club Scott and uses Rick to distract the ref so Izuka can land a leg drop. Fujinami gets two off an abdominal stretch, but Scott tags Rick, so Fujinami tags Izuka for some rapid kicks. Rick gets two counts off a hard double leg takedown and belly-to-belly suplex. Tags to Scott and Fujinami. Fujinami and Izuka try to double-team Scott, but Scott backflips out of their hold and flips both of them down. They dodge a double clothesline from Scott, but they eat a diving double Steiner line from Rick. That looked painful. Yes. Scott goes for a top rope suplex on Izuka, but Fujinami back suplexes him down and is ordered out by Anderson despite being the legal man. Yeah, it's a little weird. Izuka can't bridge on a high angle German suplex, but gets two anyway. Tag to Fujinami and double team spike pile driver by Fujinami and Izuka and Fujinami holds Scott for a Nazuka dropkick. It felt a little bit weird to me that he didn't go for a pin after the pile driver. Yeah, I was thinking that too. Dragon Sleeper by Fujinami. Scott gets the ropes, and Fujinami goes for it again, but Scott kicks him in the face. Tags to Rick and Nazuka, and Rick hits a Steiner line and elbow drop for two, and a belly-to-belly suplex for two as Fujinami breaks. All four get in, and Scott keeps Fujinami at bay, as Rick hits a top-rope belly-to-belly suplex for the three-count and the win. Fujinami kneels in the ring, shocked, and the Steiners go slap hands with the fans. Jesse continually calls Izuka Izuki as he calls the replay. (laughs) Close, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. Thoughts on this one? It was a very stiff, hard-hitting match, that's for sure. (laughs) Gosh, yes. But one of the things that's kind of in a lot of ways like the Vader Hansen match in the previous show, where it feels so different 
because they're working this sort of Japanese strong style Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Obviously, the hardening nature really does not benefit uh, Hizuka. He uh, has a rough time with this match. Poor guy. I, I yeah. swear, that, that, first, that first thing especially, just I didn't catch where it happened at first, but when I was doing the rewatch, I was looking for it more, because I knew it happened this time. Yeah. And yeah, Rick's leg comes down full, right on the nose. Like, mm-hmm. his head's not even tilted. It's, it's right up there, so... Oh, yeah. Cutter Curse, too, that guy managed to come back in for all his spots. And Absolutely. Can we make the argument that he shouldn't have? He should have actually had him checked out at first, but... Fair, fair point, yes. That's the sort of dichotomy of wrestling. You're praised for when you work their injury, but maybe sometimes you shouldn't have to work their injury? Yes. It's a question to be asked a lot of times. Obviously, the issue with him taking that big bump and injury is that it definitely messed up their plans quite a bit, at least in the early part of the match. Yeah, I feel like I didn't portray that very well in the recap I was doing, but Fujinami is in the match for a very long time. Yes. It's just that a lot of his stuff is more summarizable, Mm -hmm. where when Izuka gets in, he's getting in specifically because they have this big spot plan that needs him. Mm-hmm. So I ended up calling out a lot of his spots, and I feel like it sounds like he's in the match a lot. Right. But it's like probably more of a, I don't know, 70-30 Fujinami versus Izuka. That's about accurate, yeah, I'd say, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a period after the injury happens, he just stays down for a while, and understandably so. Yeah. And so, yeah, Fujinami's got to work a longer match in sections that he may not have worked so continuously throughout. Mm-hmm. But thankfully, he is a veteran, so he he managed to make a lot more of this match than you would think. Yes. All things considered. Yeah, the hits and throws in this match, they're pretty intense. <laughs> and to be fair, it's not just like the Steiners are brutalizing these poor Japanese men. They are definitely giving them as good as they get. Absolutely. Some of those kicks, especially. Yeah. The ones Fujinami does to Rick's leg. Mm, yeah. Like, Ow! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was Shade of Inoki against Muhammad Ali. In a lot of ways. I was going to say, maybe it's a little bit of, uh, this is the leg that hurt my friend, I shall take revenge on it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's interesting to think, the couple minutes into the match, this poor guy takes this horrific bump on his face, but he yeah, he's back there for the end, to be thrown head over heels across the ring to the mat <laughs> with the belly blade suplex. Yeah. Yep. I, I was wondering if he, like, at one point, like, hey, Tatsumi, can you take this bump instead? We'll just swap. I'll be outside and you can throw him. It's like, heck no, I worked in this business for years. This is your time, rookie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> this match had a very, very strong start, but was clearly derailed early on when Rick landed on poor Izuka's face. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, the wrestlers, especially Fujinami, were experienced enough to adjust and still come up with quite a good match. Yes. Like you were saying, I'm sure Fujinami was in there a lot longer than he originally planned, Mm -hmm. but he makes the best of it, and he works really well with both of the Steiners. So, aside from there maybe being some more holds than I expected, and Izuka almost always tagging back out really fast anytime he's in, this feels like a normal match. Yeah. Which is a major compliment to how well they adapt. Mm -hmm. There were some impressive double teams out of both teams, and loads of cool moves, Combined with a very disciplined and intricate mat wrestling style from Fujinami, and Izuka bumping like a madman for the Steiners even after the injury. My only complaint, I think, is I wish that Izuka got to show off his offense more, as the bits he does look good, but I feel that's what we probably lost because of the injury. Yeah, I see that. It's probably also a contributing factor in me feeling like the Steiners control for maybe a bit too much of this match. Mm-hmm. 
I, I would have liked it if it felt a bit more even than it does. Still, even if this was not the match that they had planned, it ends up a fine and very exciting tag match. Mm-hmm. I think my only issue with the match overall and its placement in this show is that it's two teams, one of which you know, one of which you don't know, unless you really are watching both promotions, mm-hmm. challenging for a title that you don't really know. True. And on a show you're not going to see. Fair, fair point. Yeah, to all of that, I will agree. Yeah. <laughs> I have nothing against them having this match because it, it turned out really good, but yeah, it's, it's like building up the show that they're not going to have. Yeah. It's not even like this is building for the uh, New Japan Super Show. Right. This is another New Japan show they're doing. Yeah. That's a fair point, and maybe this shouldn't have been the second from the top. Maybe you should have switched this with the Pillman and Z-Man match. Maybe. That way you would have had, okay, we've stepped away from WCW for a moment, but now we're really pulling it back to WCW proper. Right. But I, I think the match, despite going kind of weird due to the injury, they ended up nailing it, I think. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I'm not saying the match is bad. It's just, yeah, it feels like they're, it feels weird to build up something that's not really part of the promotion. Yeah, definitely. I, I can agree with you on that. So the Thunder Brothers would, as mentioned, go to a New Japan show and challenge for the titles against the team of Big, Bad, and Dangerous, which is Vader and Bam Bam Bigelow. Dang. Yeah. That is a match I really need to see because I yeah. kind of think it's going to be amazing. If you ever find that, if you find that one, let me know and we'll watch that together because that sounds cool. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately for the Steiners, their run as double champions would end, weirdly enough, on my birthday, July 5th, <laughs> at a live event. It's your fault, Al. Apparently. This would come one day after the announcement the Italian vacation mentioned earlier. Azuka actually would get to win the IWDP tag titles, but it'd be in 1996. Okay. There's a long gap from challenging the contendership with Fujinami here to actually getting to win the titles. Yeah, I do have to say, I, I, I looked up Izuka after watching this match to make sure that he, in fact, did have a very long career. Yes. Because I'd never heard of the man before, and I always get nervous when I see someone get injured when I've never heard of them before. Right. <laughs> so, um, yes, he, he I believe he retired in 2019? Or? Yes. Yeah. 2018, yeah. Yeah. So, good on him. Had a very long career. Survived this match. <laughs> and went on. Yes. <laughs> Seriously, that poor guy. <laughs> yeah. His immediate future New Japan, meanwhile, would be forming a group that I, I just have to mention the name of. J.J. Jax. <laughs> okay. <laughs> which apparently is named after Jolly Jax, which is what Jack in the Box are called in Japan. Okay. I, I, I'm sure there's context that if I watch New Japan from this era, but it's just kind of weird reading that. Oh, yeah, the team J.J. Jax. <laughs> Jolly Jax, of course. Maybe it was named by uh, DDP with his um, weird, like... Doom last year. <laughs> yes, I, that might be the case then, yeah. Jelly Jacks. JR shills Beach Blast and WCW Magazine and says that now it's time for war games. Jesse and JR discuss the basics of war games and throw it to Tony and Eric. Tony says that Missy Hyatt was trying to get an interview with Sting to no avail, dang it. <laughs> At least she didn't get chased out by Stan Hansen this time. That'd be pretty hard given he's in Japan right now. He'd probably find a way to do it. Yes, he'd book a flight just to be there. Tony asks Eric who he thinks will win. Eric says it's too close to call. Eric builds up the feud between Rick Rude and Ricky Steamboat, then mentions that there are still questions around Nikita Koloff and whether Sting can trust him. Tony brings up Sting's team being five individuals, while the Dangerous Alliance are used to working as a team. 
Eric says there's been some reason to doubt how close the Dangerous Alliance are at the moment, too, and Tony acknowledges some tension around Larry's Abisko. Tony builds up the history between the wrestlers and talks up the history of war games, and how Arn Anderson was the very first man to step in the ring at the very first war games in 1987. Tony suggests Arn may be the key to this match, and throws to ring announcer Gary Capetta. Let the war games begin, Capetta calls, and multi-stage pyro goes off as the double-length cage lowers. It seems to settle down on the rings better than last year. That's good. So as a reminder, the rules for war games in brief. This year, there are five men on each team. Each team chooses one man to start off. After five minutes, a coin flip decides which team gets to send another man in first. Every two minutes, the teams trade off, adding another man to the match. Once all ten men are in, the match beyond begins. At that point, a team can win by forcing any opponent to submit or surrender. There are no countouts, no disqualifications, and no pinfalls. And the head referee has the final say on any rulings. JR builds up the importance of the coin toss that determines advantage, and mentions Sting's existing rib injury again. And it's time for our final match. The Dangerous Alliance? That's Ravishing Rick Rude, Stunning Steve Austin, The Cruncher, Larry Zabisco, The Enforcer, Aaron Anderson, and Beautiful Bobby Eaton, with CEO Paul E. Dangerously and Medusa, versus Sting's Squadron, that's Sting, Nikita Koloff, The Natural, Dustin Rhodes, Barry Windham, and Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, in a War Games match. The referees for this match are Randy Anderson, Mike Atkins, and Bill Alfonso. And War Games uses both rings. So this has been a long time coming for these groups uh, in sections. The previous year, Rick Rude won the U.S. title from Sting with some help from the outside. Ricky Steamboat and Dustin Rhodes would lose the tag titles to Arn Anderson and Bobby Eaton, who would lose it later, obviously, to the Steiners, as we know now. Mm-hmm. The big story going in is that Nikita Koloff returned about three weeks before the show. He was last seen in 1991 feuding with Sting himself. So obviously the question is, can you trust him given that last time he saw him, he was, you know, trying to beat you up and possibly kill you. <laughs> and now he's like, no, I love you. I'll be friends again. As is Sting, so he has a history and will continue to have history with friends betraying him. So yes, he's probably not sure where to go there. It's actually more surprising to me that Sting has any doubt for Nikita Koloff. <laughs> True. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Considering his general air of gullibility. You should just take him as word immediately, yeah. Yeah. Our teams enter, starting with the Dangerous Alliance, who have kind of a JRPG evil organization music theme, which is very appropriate. Makes sense, yeah. Medusa has a very sparkly blue dress, and Rick Rude has his own face on his tights, along with what appears to be a geisha. Sting's Squadron comes out second to Sting's current theme, which is sadly not yet his vocal man called Sting. Soon. It'll get it soon. Yeah. Sting's kind of weird blue denim with green highlights doesn't hold a candle to the awesomeness that was the Captain Sting America outfit last year. No question. Koloff has a world peace jacket, which bears the flags of the United States and Lithuania. Lithuania had declared independence from the Soviet Union in 1990 and gained admittance to the United Nations in late 1991. Hmm. They would go on to adopt its constitution later in October 1992 and elect its first president in 1993, though it wouldn't be till August 1993 that the Soviet army fully withdrew. So it's kind of cool of Koloff to highlight that struggle, though the jacket design does maybe make it look more like Lithuania and the U.S. were rivals who suddenly signed a peace treaty. 
more than that the U.S. should support Lithuania's bid for independence. I could see that, yeah. Koloff's wrestling outfit also bears the Lithuanian colors. Everyone on the team is wearing some jacket or another, actually, except for Ricky Steamboat, who presumably was all like, I'm a dragon, I don't need to wear a jacket to keep warm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's got scales, that's all he needs. Steamboat has his nose bandaged. I like Rhodes' bullhead logo on the back of his jacket. Very reminiscent, or I guess future-nissant, of the rocks. I would say that of the Rivera Steakhouse logo. <laughs> true, true, yes. It's probably like a Texas Longhorns thing, maybe my guess. Probably is, yeah. Dangerously strategizes with his team with a large document, and they send Steve Austin in first as Sting Squadron sends in Barry Windham. Jesse says that Dangerously's leadership is like Vince Lombardi or Mike Ditka. JR says it reminds him more of Jim Jones, the cult leader who famously forced his cult members to commit mass suicide using cyanide-laced flavor aid, which led slightly inaccurately to the expression drinking the Kool-Aid yes. to refer to blind obedience to a cause or leader even in the face of negative consequences. We're getting a lot of weird history from this. this we are, so yes. <laughs> I was not expecting to write that much about Lithuania and Jim Jones <laughs> Yeah, yeah. in a War Games match, but hey, there you go. Austin and Wyndham start us off and meet in ring one. JR points out that Wyndham is a War Games veteran, and Austin is not. Wyndham mostly dominates with heavy strikes, but Austin manages some counters, as we see dangerously planning strategy in case they don't win the coin toss. Thought that was really cool to show that aspect of the match. Yeah. They end up in ring two, and Wyndham lands a DDT, but Austin clotheslines Wyndham over the ropes to between the rings, then hits a flying clothesline over the ropes. Cool spot there. Mm-hmm. Wyndham bats aside a cage-assisted dropkick, having learned from fighting Pillman last year. He smashes Austin to the cage in front of Sting's squadron. Jesse accuses Steamboat of spitting on Austin, but JR denies it. Austin is bleeding, and Wyndham bites his forehead. The opening five minutes expire, and the Dangerous Alliance wins the coin toss, so Rick Rude comes in to put them up two versus one. Rude lands hard strikes, and Austin hits a flying clothesline off the second rope as Rude holds Wyndham. They send Wyndham to the cage twice and club him down, but as Rude puts on an aggressive face lock, two minutes are up, and Steamboat charges in, two versus two now. Steamboat smashes Austin and Rude into the cage, and DDT's Rude. Austin sends Steamboat to the corner, but Steamboat leaps up on the turnbuckle to dodge a charge, and Austin eats post. That was really cool. Mm -hmm. Steamboat hits a cage-assisted dropkick on Austin, then latches on Rude's shoulders for a Herkimrana. Rude goes for the injured nose, but Wyndham saves. But it's time for a new entrant, and Arn Anderson comes in. Three versus two. Wyndham charges, but Anderson hits a DDT, then saves Rude from Steamboat with a beautiful spine buster. Mm -hmm. Double Boston Crab by Rude and Anderson on Steamboat, and Jesse says Steamboat must be crying for his various girlfriends, but JR denies him having any. As we know, he's a family man. Mm -hmm. Pile driver to Steamboat, and Anderson fights for Wyndham as Rude and Steamboat clothesline each other down. Time for the next entrant, and Dustin Rhodes comes in to even it up three versus three. Rhodes fights off Anderson and Austin, and raises Austin so high on an atomic drop, his head hits the cage roof. <laughs> Rhodes is a tall guy. Yes. High-velocity Rhodes clothesline, and a second earns a slightly weird turning fall from Anderson. Rhodes starts to go for Rude, but Steamboat has things well in hand with a Boston Crab, then a figure four leg lock, so Rhodes fights Austin instead and hits an electric chair drop. Austin is super bloody now. Yes. Yes. 
Wyndham jams Anderson's head between the rings. Rude tries to turn the figure four over, but Steamboat turns it back. That's a rare spot to see, actually. Uh, yeah, that's true. Like, he doesn't go over to the ropes like they sometimes do. He actually manages to turn it back over and just keep it on. <laughs> Two minutes are up, so Zabisco comes in, four versus three. But Rhodes immediately destroys poor Zabisco with punches. <laughs> <laughs> the poor guy cannot catch a break this year either. <laughs> he cannot, yeah. Medusa climbs the cage with Dangerously's huge cell phone, and Sting climbs up too late to stop her from dropping the phone to Anderson, who nails Rhodes and Steamboat with the phone. Austin punches a barely conscious Wyndham, and Rhodes and Wyndham eat cage as Rude rips out a screaming Steamboat's nose bandage. So many people are bleeding now. Two minutes are up, and Sting charges in. Four versus four. Sting takes Anderson down with a one-handed bulldog, presses Rude up into the cage, hurls Anderson to the cage, and back body drops Austin into it in an insane spot. Oh, yeah. Sting rakes Anderson's face against the cage so he can join the bleeding party. <laughs> Rhodes takes a high-velocity clothesline from Austin and does a spinning flip. Steamboat crams Rude's head between the rings, and he and Sting wishbone Rude's legs. Dangerously gives a war cry, as it's time for the final Dangerous Alliance member, Bobby Eaton, to enter. Five versus four now. Eaton throws Steamboat into the cage, and oh my gosh, Rhodes is bloody as hell. Yes, he is. That's genetic. <laughs> it's this shocking shot of him turning towards the cage, and it's like running down his chest. Mm-hmm. It's insane. He has clearly carried on the Rhodes uh, family tradition of bleeding like mad. <clears throat> for sure. Eaton wrenches Steamboat's nose, then goes to where Rude has Sting in a neck hold, but Steamboat just kind of brushes him aside to clothesline Rude. Eaton just ignores that and goes to the other ring in a pretty weird spot. I'm guessing Eaton was supposed to already be in the other ring. <laughs> yeah, must be. Steamboat's just kind of like, hey dude, can you move? <laughs> <laughs> Zabisco and Rude work on detaching a turnbuckle in between fighting Steamboat and Sting, and JR wonders if Koloff will be loyal to Sting's squadron, as it's time now for Koloff to come in. We're five versus five. And the match beyond begins. Koloff decks Anderson and helps Sting up and says something to him, as there's clearly a bit of tension. But then Koloff pushes Sting out of the way of a charging Austin and Anderson to take the blows himself, proving his loyalty. Sting and Koloff clothesline Austin and Anderson down and high-five and hug, and we get crazy brawling everywhere. Rude keeps working on the turnbuckle as Sting hits a tremendous stinger splash on Anderson and slaps on the Scorpion Deathlock. Eaton saves, and the turnbuckle is detached. So Eaton goes and puts the pieces together. Rhodes puts Zabisco in a figure four leg lock, and Koloff smashes a tremendously bloody Austin into the turnbuckle. But Rude saves Zabisco, and Zabisco and Eaton go after Sting. Eaton holds Sting as Zabisco scoops up the turnbuckle and swings the attached steel hook for Sting, but Sting escapes, and Eaton takes the steel right in the shoulder. Sting clubs Zabisco down and slaps a vicious armbar on Eaton, who screams and quickly submits. Sting's squadron has won. Dangerously gets in the ring and shouts at Zabisco as Sting's team celebrates. Zabisco gives excuses, saying he didn't have time to notice but the Dangerous Alliance is not in the mood for forgiveness. How many times is that, Zabisco? Anderson asks. Thoughts on this one? It was quite good. Like the previous match, it was very hard hitting. Mm -hmm. They definitely did not pull punch each other. 
what I like about this match is it was a bit easier to follow than the previous one, but she went to get halfway through it or in the later stages of it when there's so many people involved. Which is surprising, considering that there's two extra guys in this one. True, true. Last year was four versus four. Yeah, that's true. The thing for me is the previous year, it, I know, it got tricky to follow everyone because there's two rings they can't really keep up. And so if someone would be down, they're going to look, they'll be fighting somewhere else. And mm-hmm. What they did this year I thought was good was they made sure to have all these connected rivalries and they had people come in yep. directly related to that. So Brood comes in, so of course Timo comes in right after him. The match flowed, for me, you know, it flowed more easily. I never lost too much track of where someone is. Likewise, there's a bit with these matches when there's so many people that sometimes people are just kind of putting a hold on people, like sitting there because they're, they're not there for the finish, mm-hmm. but you got to be doing something the whole time. I thought there was less of that in this one as well. Yeah, I'm totally in agreement on both those points. I think the rivalries are clear in this match. Yes. Especially Steamboat and, and Rick Rude oh, keep yeah. coming back to each other. And it's, like you said, it helps you follow the match and gives it a good sense of emotion across the board. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely they seem to do a better job of following the action in the match. I thought they did respectably last year, but I definitely oh, yeah. had a few points where I lost track of someone last year, where this year I really didn't. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and that's not to knock the previous match. It's just things you get from doing matches multiple times. You can learn better ways to do things, that's all. Mm-hmm. I like seeing Sting's team do so well. Uh, it was nice they got to look strong throughout. They didn't have the man advantage, so they get down. When they always fight the way back up. And Conrad supports Zabisco, who just gets beat every time he comes into the ring. Oh, God, poor guy, yeah. The only thing I think kind of took too long for me, I understand why they did it, was the whole bit when they took the turnbuckle and like the corner thing apart. They had some trouble getting that to work. Three points where they sort of stop and work on it and ignore other people in the ring. It was never too bad, but it's enough of that where it took a while to get like, disconnected, then form the weapon again. Obviously, it paid off really well, but yeah, it was... It's like with some matches when they're putting up tables or like setting up ladders in these spots. It's like, I'm as vicious blood for you, but let me spend two minutes adjusting this ladder exactly where I need it or pulling this thing off here and there. But otherwise, I thought it looked really good. I, I kind of disagree with you a little bit on the, on the amount of time that it takes. I kind of liked the fact that they did so much time on showing them working towards that mm. because I felt like the actual ending shot was very short. And the amount of time that Sting spends on the arm lock is is rather short as well. So I think that the added time helped make that look like a major shot that was worthy of being the ending of the match. I can see that, I guess. And just for me, it just, there's a pacing thing sometimes where if you take too long and you're not like fighting someone, it looks a little weird. That's my only thing. Exceptional and wild match here. Filled with cool, creative spots, lots of neat teamwork moments, and some crazy ring-to-ring dives. As with last year, the chaos just grew and grew and grew as the match went on, but it never really became hard to follow. I felt like I could still get the idea of which team was in control at all times. Mm -hmm. Each entry felt different, and I could spot little elements of match strategy amidst the chaos— with people consciously trying to take their foes away from the entrance when a new foe was going to enter, or stacking up allies to await them. Like we said earlier, great involvement of the personal feuds, too. Yes. And Sting really does his best to make that final arm hold look vicious as heck. He does, yeah. And uh, Eaton gives it his all kind of like screaming in it as well. I really felt like that spot could have been underwhelming because it's just an arm lock, Mm -hmm. but they did everything they could to make that feel like a big moment. 
Right, sure. So it worked as the ending for me, I thought. A bloody, violent, chaotic, and very exciting war games. So the team of Takeda Koloff, Dustin Rhodes, and Barry Windham would face Arn Anderson, Steve Austin, and Bobby Eaton at Beach Blast in a match that was meant to be something more, but we'll discuss that when we discuss Beach Blast. Okay. As for Rick Steamboat, he would keep feeding with Rick Root after this point. Obviously, they had not sell that business yet, which will culminate at Beach Blast in a confusingly non-title Iron Man match. I get that he wants to beat him. It's just weird that he's taunted him in this high-stake 30-minute match, and there's no stakes, I guess. It's like Roddy Piper versus Hulk Hogan at Starcade 96. Yeah. It's like, it's not for the title, just because reasons. Yes. I was, as I mentioned earlier, Cactus Jack would feud with Sting for a bit, letting them have a match at Beach Blast. But ultimately, they come back around to the previous feud, that being him and Vader. Vader injured his bruise back in March. Yeah. So they would have a dig tile match at the Great American Bash, 1982. Yeah, it feels interesting how often Vader is mentioned on this show because he injured Sting's ribs when he's not involved in the Dangerous Alliance match at all. That's true, yeah. Yeah. He kind of got his own thing going on there, yeah. They would kick the risk out of the group following this match for his final failure, which would probably turn him a face for a bit, which is weird to think of Vader as a face. Obviously, we got that with Dark in 97. <laughs> it's always the you didn't cheat well enough therefore <laughs> yes yeah face face thing yeah exactly yeah he'd have a brief feud with steve austin bobby eaton a bit before he retire for a full-time wrestler okay it is interesting actually I, I just realized with this and last year last year the guy that got hit accidentally was blamed in the doom match oh yeah received the blame and was kicked out of the group in this one the guy that did the hitting got blamed for the loss, and got kicked out of the group. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's interesting. <laughs> Just a weird contrast. <laughs> Just goes to show whoever's on the down and outs with the group is the one that gets kicked out, no matter what the excuse is, right? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. We go to Tony and Eric, and Eric says he's never seen anything so intense in his life. Tony talks over the events of the show and points out that we can still see Zabisco arguing with the Dangerous Alliance in the ring over his shoulder. Eric praises the Signers versus Fujinami and Izuka match and congratulates the Freebirds on their win. The Dangerous Alliance abandons Zabisco in the ring, and Tony throws back to JR and Jesse. JR asks Jesse if he's ever seen anything like War Games, and Jesse says it was the most brutal event he's ever covered. Jesse goes over the amount of blood in the match and recaps the ending, and JR wraps up the show. We get fireworks around the arena as the credits scroll. Bill Watts and Kip Frey are credited this time, so the show must have been around the transition between them as WCW head. We also see guys nicknamed Flunky and Wookie in the credits. I'd be interested in the stories behind those ones. (laughs) And Wrestle War 92 is done. So overall thoughts on Wrestle War 92? It's uh, not a great show up until the last three matches. (laughs) Yep. So much of what happens is fine. Fine to, eh, all right. There's nothing truly, truly bad in the match. There's stuff that gets close, maybe. But on the overall show, it's just it's kind of overwhelming. It's, it feels like you're watching WWE Saturday night until they get to the last few matches, and then things actually have stakes and intensity and what you really should have had the whole show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I'm in total agreement. This was a very dull show until the last three matches. I would only call two of the matches outright bad, 
those being Mr. Hughes versus Ron Simmons and Todd Champion versus the Super Invader. But the other four of the first six matches were nothing to get really excited about. Mm -hmm. I was ready to declare this a one-match show until Pillman versus Z-Man came up. And boy, did that wake me up with a good mix of story and fun action. Yeah. The Steiners versus Fujinami and Izuka gets slightly derailed, but still manages to be good. And War Games is, of course, excellent and wild. So once we hit those final three matches, the show's good. But it was a bit of work getting there. Agreed. Still, those final three matches do occupy nearly half the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I can't complain that much. We had nearly no promos on this show, which certainly hurt a lot. Yes. I could have gotten into the matches a lot more if I knew that there was some major storyline going into them, or the wrestlers got to build up some energy before the match. But the only match that benefits from a pre-match build is Pillman versus Z-Man. Even War Games again gets no promos about it, which just seems like a real missed opportunity, especially with all the feuds that seem to be involved in that one. Mm-hmm. That's definitely a contributing factor in this show falling a bit flat for the first half. The commentary team did well, save for some questionable comments once again in the Japanese match. Yeah. I like Jesse's blend of heelish advice and legitimate wrestling knowledge. And JR plays off him a bit better than he does Dusty. He engages more with Jesse and will debate him actively. Yeah. They make a good team, and they do their best to build up the matches. They just have some heavy lifting to do on the first half of the show. <laughs> yeah. There is um one awkward line with Ventura that Jim Ross does the that's Ventura's opinion and other does blah blah blah. <laughs> the sort of disclaimer thing people do yeah. is consistently bad. But he's he's gonna have a couple of those every show. It's just kind of the nature of Vista Ventura. Yeah. For worse, I suppose. He has really great commentary in terms of his wrestling knowledge, in terms of his ability to to engage with the other commentators, but unfortunately the price of that is he does make some shoddy comments from time to time. Agreed, yes. It's just always the tension with, with him as a commentator. I think he's a good one in the balance, but you do have to put up with some stuff, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. I think the longer another announcer works with him, the more they learn to kind of like brush past those very quickly and get him back focused. Mm -hmm. I remember some show or another where Tony did that like really well with him, I think. Yeah, I think I told him about yeah. Just like immediately gets him, gets him back on topic. <laughs> <laughs> Production seemed fine on this show without any notable screw-ups. There's a few interesting moments here and there, like the Freebirds having to wait a while for their Pyro and Z-Man apparently being scared by his. <laughs> yeah. But this year I didn't really notice production, so that's probably a fair sign that things went all right for it. Nothing I really want to compliment heavily, but nothing to really complain about either. Overall, Wrestle War 92 ended up as a fair show, but it's actually almost two separate shows. The front half is just a dull, middling show without much to sustain interest, and the back half is great. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Because there's nothing really on the first half of the show that affects anything later, you can pretty much just cut off that first half and just watch the back. And that's what I'd recommend. Start the show at precisely 1 hour, 22 minutes, and 11 seconds. That'll get you to the Pillman vs. Z-Man video, and you'll have a fun, half-size wrestling show to watch without dragging your way through the first half. <laughs> Yeah, I can see that. That's a pretty solid logic, yeah. Yeah, it's rare that we have such a solid division <laughs> yeah. between the halves of the show. All right, match of the night and MVP. How about you start with match of the night? Okay. Obviously, it all comes down to the last three matches in the show. They all have the strong points. Uh, I think maybe if the injury hadn't happened and messed with the tag match that might have overtaken the other matches, 
Mm-hmm. But I think for me, I still have to go with war games. Yeah. They've improved upon the structure in many ways, even by adding people. I mean, I like the previous year's match, but I think this is definitely a better version of that even still. So that mm-hmm. helps it hold strong against the two matches. Yeah, for me, unquestionably war games. Do not get me wrong, the other two back half matches are good, but they just can't match the pure chaos, destruction, and excitement that was War Games. Two absolutely great teams, some cool interwoven in-match storylines, dangerously neat planning bits, and nice foreshadowing for the ending. This was a particularly fun example of the War Games match type and stole the show this year for me. Well, that's nice about this War Games too, and then you did mention is that... It's a pretty even mix of veterans in war games, like mm-hmm. Eaton, Anderson, Sting, even Koloff, and newcomers to war games, like surprisingly Rick Rude, I think just because of the timing thing. Yeah. As well as Dustin Rhodes and Tancy Vossen, as they mentioned in the commentary. As two really, really good teams. Yeah. I mean, aside from being experienced in war games in some cases, most of the teams are very experienced overall. Yes. They're all or mostly big characters. Mm-hmm. and they're all very good at working together to just put on a, a great match story. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of magic. Yeah. <laughs> this one. MVP? So that one I, I spent a lot of time thinking about, because obviously we're still in the back half of the show. How do you pick one person out of that? Yeah. I was somewhat tempted to give it to Izuka just for cutting through the show. Good that match. <laughs> As was I, yes. <laughs> yeah. And and to be fair, he had good performances. His moves up before that were good, and he worked through it really well. Like, actual moves you got to do during that were good. Mm-hmm. Like, I was like, see, either the Steiners, they'll be hard to pick between the two of them. Probably, if I was going between the Steiners, I'd probably go Scott, but it's they're pretty competitive at this point. Looking back and rewatching War Games helped me. I think for me, I got to pick Sting. Okay. He had lots of little stuff throughout the match that I appreciated. Um, There's a fun body you called out where he's doing the press slam bit to Rick Rude. He's walking around with him. It's, it's already impressive. He's carrying this guy in his arms like that. He's typically pressing him up against the ceiling where the support beams are, mm-hmm. rather than just on the cage. Yep. So there's a little extra thing like that that he does. And when he gets, when he realizes the arm is weakness, he instantly latches on as a really intense looking hold. Yeah. So despite not having his cool jacket this year, I think he, he went out for me. <laughs> yeah, he is very, very good in war games this year. I mean, he's always good in just about everything that he does. Yes. But especially this year in War Games. Slight spoilers here, but if I were picking someone from War Games, it would probably be Sting. Okay. But I am not. Oh. This was a really hard choice. Like you said, you pretty much look at the last three matches. They're all great Mm -hmm. and had some terrific performances in all of them. But I'm going to go with Fujinami. Okay. I really credit him with being the guy that seems to be holding that IWGP tag match together after Izuka's injury. Mm-hmm. He does a lot more than it seems like he was originally going to, and he's a big part of why that match remains exciting and complex. Sure. I do want to give credit to Izuka as well for continuing to do what he could and taking big spots even after the injury, mm-hmm. but Fujinami was a veteran hand in a match that absolutely needed a veteran hand to keep it all together. Mm-hmm. And I give him a lot of credit for that match remaining good despite itself. Sure. I feel like that could have easily been a disastrous match that just went completely off the rails, but it really seems like he's a big part of just holding it all together. If Cactus Jack had actually gotten to wrestle, 
he might have been able to edge someone out. Yes. Because his crazy character work, like his talk squealing and stuff like that, I thought he really nailed. Just he's in not able to wrestle and he kind of doesn't do anything else. Yeah, he has too small of a part to really be in contention. Yes. Or uh, he, he does perfectly great with the part that he's given, but it's just he's not the focal point. Correct. For anything really. So, yeah. Even though the only people that I considered an MVP contention were from the last three matches, there were some pretty good moments earlier in the night still. Oh, great, yeah. I think you can at least see the potential in a lot of the performers. Sure. Even if they haven't fully reached it yet in many cases. Absolutely, yeah. And that wraps up our review of WrestleBorn 92. If you've enjoyed listening to us tonight, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook as Let's Go to the Ring. Links will be available in the episode description. Follow us for episode announcements and other show details, and share your own thoughts about the Wrestle Wars as we go through. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, or TuneIn. And please, if you've enjoyed this show, give us a rating or review, and share the show through your favorite social media platforms to help others discover us. Many thanks to OSW Review for attendance and pay-per-view figures, and to Gina Trujillo for our logo. We've finished The Last Wrestle War. At only four shows, it's one of WCW's shorter pay-per-view series. Mm -hmm. So next episode, it's time for us to take a look back at Wrestle War as a whole. We'll discuss the series' identity, go over some of our favorite and least favorite moments, and hand out some awards. It's going to be a fun discussion, so join us next time for that, and to find out the series we'll be covering next. This is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgen signing off. Good night, everybody. Happy wrestling. Tonight's podcast is sponsored by Culver's. Oh, yeah. <laughs> In that I'm, I will be eating Culver's later. <laughs> no, I got it, yeah. One day we'll, spon- we'll sponsor us.